Hey everybody, this is Jonathan Lack. If my voice sounds a little hoarse, it's because it's 1.30 in the morning and we just finished recording nearly six hours of content for the week. Uh, our topic for the week was a little bit bigger than we thought because we finally did our long-promised retrospective of the Stephen Moffat era of Doctor Who. That conversation wound up running over four hours, and since I swore after this year's E3 podcast to never release a four-hour episode again, I'm going to break that conversation into two parts. In today's episode, number 217, you'll hear the first half of our discussion, which is about the Moffat era as a whole, how it felt covering it these last seven years, which writers we've loved most, how the show evolved, all that stuff. Uh, this episode also contains a rundown of the week's news, including announcements from the Game Awards. And tomorrow I'm going to release episode 218, which will have the second half of our discussion, in which we rank all 39 Doctor Who stories written by Stephen Moffat. Uh, it's just all a little bit too much for one episode, so I hope the two parts make it a little more accessible for everyone. We also have our next classic Doctor Who bonus podcast coming later this week on Wednesday. It's about the fourth Doctor story, City of Death, which, yes, we also recorded tonight because we are crazy people. Uh, and if you hate Doctor Who, I'm sorry, you might need to ignore the podcast for this week. We will be back next week with Star Wars and top ten lists for games and all that other stuff. That will be next week. Um, but for now, this week is a sort of Doctor Who celebration. So Monday, today, episode 217, tomorrow, 218, with the countdown, and Wednesday is our City of Death podcast. In any case, enjoy part one of our talk coming up right after this week's theme song. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We are finally doing one of our most long-promised episodes, which is a in-depth retrospective of the Stephen Moffat era of Doctor Who. Yes. So if you hate our Doctor Who episodes, one, I don't know why you're subscribed, right. but thank you for being here, I guess. Yeah. Uh, two, Sorry that there's not a new Persona thing to talk about for yeah, a while. Yeah. Two, we will have 30 minutes at the top of today's show on other things before we get to Doctor Who. And three, I want to say this is by far the most preparation I have ever put into one of these podcasts. Uh, I have been working on my notes and everything for this for about six months. Right. Because one of the things we're going to be doing as part of this retrospective is I have rewatched and ranked... And I have written about, and there will be a written version of this accompanying this podcast at some point, uh, all 39 stories that Mr. Stephen Moffat has contributed to Doctor Who, uh, not just through his six-year tenure, but also during the Russell T. Davies years. And we are going to talk through all of them. And this is all in an attempt to try to contextualize and understand this very significant era in the history of our favorite show before it comes to an end. Because Christmas Day this year, we get Twice Upon a Time. It's the last episode for Peter Capaldi, the last for Moffat, maybe the last for composer Murray Gold. Like, this is a big exodus, and the show is regenerating again next year with Chris Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker. And we're very excited for that. Yeah. But at the same time, I think you want to try to put a cap on this thing we've been living through. And for Sean and I... 
you know, I started watching Doctor Who live with the 11th Hour, with Moffat, the beginning of the Moffat-Matt Smith era. I have written about or done a podcast on every episode of this era. Like, it has been a big source of our coverage. Yeah. And I think it's good to try to take a step back and contextualize it. Yeah, because it's also, like, by the time, like, um, when I finished my complete watch through of Doctor Who from An Unearthly Child to at the time, it was The Big Bang was the last episode because it, the last episode of season five was the most recent episode. And then I think Christmas Carol then would have been the first episode new that I watched. Um, nice. Like basically, which was almost like really close to each other because I got the season five DVD box set like very close to Christmas. So yeah, so it was... Like, it is, like, the history of this podcast in so many ways is the history of Moffat's role as a showrunner on Doctor Who, the ups, the downs, and the fucking super ups of yes. the Peter Capaldi era. And then also, I've, I've, I've not finished the Peter Capaldi watch through. I'm, like, I'm just at the beginning of season eight right now, but I have, like, rewatched most of modern Doctor Who, so I also have, like, fresh takes on all this stuff. So it's not just us rehashing old opinions, it's us looking back, like, fully at his run on the show and then contextualizing it and and putting a cap on it for for whatever is happening now. Yeah, so... The future of Doctor Who. So we're going to have a lot of content on today's podcast about that. There will also be, as I said, a written um, version of this that I've already written because I wanted to have my thoughts like coalesced before we recorded this. And I will be publishing that sometime over the next week. It'll have to be in parts because it's 25 pages long. Um, so we'll figure that out. And I'm going to try to link to every podcast we've done on the different episodes so you can hear some of our original thoughts as well. So it'll be a good archive as well. Uh, and also this week, so this is our Monday podcast. On Wednesday, we are doing our fifth monthly bonus Doctor Who pod on the fourth Doctor story, City of Death. We just recorded that. Ton of fun. Excited for you guys to hear that. If you haven't watched City of Death, and even if you've never watched Doctor Who, watch City of Death. You'll love it. It's great. If you don't like City of Death, you're not human, I think. Yeah, you have to watch it. Listen to that podcast. And we will also probably have a two-podcast week next week because we're going to be doing Star Wars and our top ten games. Lots of stuff coming as we prepare for the end of the year. Yeah. But Sean, let's dive into... Uh, we're skipping stuff this week. Stuff has been... I've been playing the Zelda DLC. What have you been playing? Um, I, I put a lot of time into the Monster Hunter beta. The Monster Hunter World beta. That went up nice. a couple of days ago as the recording of this podcast. Yeah. And it is very good. But we'll, we'll take a visit to Sean's beta corner... Next, next week, week. yeah, um, we will to, to go into detail, and I will review the Zelda DLC in greater depth next week as well. Uh, so all of that will be coming. But for now, we're going to jump into the week's news and do some news before we get into our main topic. And there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about this week, Sean. Yeah, um, the kind of we'll maybe I'll save this for the well, we'll get to it. The game awards were the big news of the week because there were a lot of announcements. That's kind of the biggest thing in December for video games. Uh, but let's talk about other things from the week. The first one is something we missed on last week's podcast. This was out of New right. York Comic Con. And I think it passed both of us by, and then we caught it after we recorded. And DC has announced another uh, in their line of animated films, but this one is special. This one is called Batman Ninja, and it is not just a Japanese-style Batman. It is Batman anime movie made by not just like some anime people in Japan, like some of the leading artists in Japan. And the trailer for this is out. It's about a minute and a half. And it blew the fucking back of my brain off. 
Yes, it is one of the things that's interesting about it is it's the English title of it is Batman Ninja. The Japanese title of it is Ninja Batman. I don't know why it's they titled it that way. As it, it's it's as if they're following like Japanese in English like name rules of like surname and given name orders. Yeah, but yeah. So Ninja Batman or Batman Ninja, depending on how you want it, is like it's it's an animated like like anime version of Batman fully that has um like it's um the guy who made Afro Samurai is involved. I think he does the character designs. Um, I believe like the director of like animation is the guy who does the like animation for the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure opening animations, which is a weirdly specific thing, but if you, like me, have seen the the modern JoJo's Bizarre Adventure anime adaptations, um, that's fucking amazing. And it's so, you can so tell by watching the show, it is so stylish, it's got such a sense of, like, momentum and weight and movement to it. It's, like, it just looks fucking amazing. But, like, the the thing about it was I had heard about this actually I think a month or so ago around the time when they first announced that it was going to be a thing but they hadn't really shown footage or they showed like a like a teasery thing for it um and at the time I had no idea what the plot was going to be and so I initially kind of rolled my eyes at the idea of it because it's like I feel like every now and again Marvel and DC get this idea in their head of like oh let's like get like some Japanese anime creators to do an anime version of our like of Wolverine or something like that and it's usually like either okay or not that good um and so i was like ah this is probably not going to be that great and i kind of had assumed that the plot was going to be it's set in fuel era japan and there's like a like batman-esque dude but it's just like it's just like you know japanese characters feudal era japan a guy that has like a similar backstory to batman that looks like a ninja batman but it's just like a sort of ninja story in feudal japan it's like that could have been fine what i didn't realize is the actual plot of this is that it's Batman, like Bruce Wayne Batman, gets teleported back in time to Fuel Era Japan. So it's actual Bruce Wayne Batman. He gets teleported back in time. The Joker gets teleported back. The Joker seems to be, like, basically taking the role of Oda Nobunaga and, like, trying to unify Japan under military rule. But it's the actual Joker. Like, Harley Quinn is there. Catwoman is there. Alfred is there. Um, like, I think basically all the Robins, like Nightwing, Red Hood, um, like, um, Red Robin, who would be Tim Drake, and then, like, Damian Wayne Robin, who's Bruce Wayne's son. Like, all those characters are there. It's a ridiculous cast of comic characters that, as far as I know... All of them are the, like, like sort of, like, canonical, you would think of, like, American comic book versions of these characters just teleported in back into time and having to solve this issue in feudal Japan, which is a fucking bonkers-ass plot for a movie that is so amazing to me. And the trailer, like, so I had not seen or heard about this. My brother, for some reason, had heard about it and was like, you've seen this, right? And I'm like, no. And he's like... Sit down right now. I'm showing you this. He should have shot a reaction video of me watching this. Because it was like full on like... I like my jaw dropped. I like covered my mouth. I was like, oh my god. Because this trailer is insane. They are not paying lip service to anime. It is anime-ass anime. Oh yeah. The acting, it's all Japanese voice actors. Like, and some big names. Batman is Koichi Yamadera, who's in a million yeah. things. You might know him as Beerus in Dragon Ball. Yeah, he's Togusa in Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Harley Quinn is Rie Kugamiya. Al from Full Metal Alchemist, yeah, which or is great. Say from the the Japanese yep. Persona Four. Yep, yeah, it's just like it's an amazing cast. The visuals like are bloody and brutal and like very hand painted and all this. Like it is, 
insane. Like, this might be the comic book movie I'm now most excited for. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, one one note for the cast, because this is something that, like, I found out, like, a year ago or so when I was looking up... I, I'm really interested in, like, Japanese dubs of American productions of things, because I think it's, like, a weird, like, mixing of these two worlds for me. And so, about a year or so ago, I ended up watching, like, a bunch of scenes from the Dark Knight dubbed in Japanese, which is really interesting. And through that process, I learned that Koichi Yamadetta is like the voice of of Batman in Japan. Like That's he, amazing. He was the dub voice for Michael Keaton. He is the dub voice for like the Batman the Animated Series in Japan. He is the dub voice for like all the Christopher Nolan movies. Like anything that has fucking Batman, as far as I can determine, that has Batman in it that is released in Japan that is dubbed in Japanese, this guy voices Batman. And so he has such a fucking amazing Batman voice. He is so good at it that I, I recognize it as soon as I heard that in, like, all those memories of, like, oh, right, I learned this. Like, this dude is just Japanese Batman, and that is fucking awesome. Like, they did their homework. Like, yeah. this, it really feels like they just passed this off to a Japanese studio and said, here's $10 million or whatever, go wild. And they went wild. Yeah, they really did. There's, I cannot wait for this, Sean. There's, there's my, maybe my favorite part of the trailer, because I think there's actually two trailers. There's like a New York Comic Con one, and then there's like a Japanese one that was released in Japan. I don't know if the New York Comic Con one, this shot is in there, but there's a sequence, in the, definitely in the Japanese trailer, where Batman is putting on all of this samurai armor because he got teleported back in his normal Batman suit. At some point in the movie, over the course of the movie, he's going to have to switch into the samurai armor. And as he's putting on the samurai armor, he's saying this stuff in Japanese of basically like, I don't have my Batmobile. I don't have my Batwing. But I still have this body. And then he like grabs this sword. And it's such a fucking like Bruce Wayne moment. Of like he doesn't have any of his gadgets. And any of his shit. But he's still going to defeat the Joker. Because he's the fucking Batman. And it's it's so awesome. If people have not seen that trailer. They need to check it out. Because it's so fucking cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a thing Sean. I'm excited. We will talk about that at length next year. Uh, moving on to our next news item. Ryan Reynolds has been cast as Pikachu in the Detective Pikachu movie. And in my notes, I just wrote, what a fucking sentence I just yeah. typed. That is never happening. It's never Sean, going to happen. I, this, don't, I can't believe it. I don't. I can't. Sean, this movie is further along than you know. No. This is being made by Universal and Legendary Entertainment. Nuh-uh. Uh, they have already hired a director, Rob Letterman. It's not fucking uh, happening. It has a script. Justice Smith, who I believe was in the get-down... Uh, has been cast as the human lead. I might be mixing him up with the person from the Spider-Man trailer we're about to talk about. Nope, he's in the get-down. Yes. Uh, is the human lead. Uh, Catherine Newton was cast as the female lead. And now we have Ryan Reynolds as the role of Detective Pikachu. And here's the best part. Other actors considered for the role were Dwayne Johnson, Mark Wahlberg, and Hugh Jackman. And what? I'm a little no. sad we didn't get Hugh Jackman's Pikachu. But I just love... That we're going to have, maybe, a Detective Pikachu movie at some yeah. point, And the kids are going to be like, I love Detective Pikachu. Can I watch another Ryan Reynolds movie, Mom? And they're like, okay, let's watch this Deadpool. It looks fun. Yeah. Like, that's some weird cross-promotion. Why are they making this? What is this thing? Yeah, like, the other point of this is, is that because that had them, like, putting this out reminded me that they were making a great Detective Pikachu game. That had a really hilarious trailer forever ago that had Japanese Pikachu like talking with this like very like Japanese Columbo ass voice yes. that was so fucking amazing. And then I was like, whatever happened to that video game? Apparently that game came out in Japan in February 3, 
2016. Yeah, I no, mean, it never came over here. 2016, it hasn't come out over here. What? And, and they're making a movie out of it? Yeah. Fucking localize the fucking video game first, dude. Then you can cast Ryan Reynolds or whoever. Like, do your fucking due diligence. Why would you make a movie first of this insane fucking idea? Anyway, it is quite weird. It's never uh, happening. I don't believe it. I refuse. Sean, here's something you're excited about. Uh, we mentioned this earlier that Criterion, uh, Giannis Films, but uh, that's the parent company of the Criterion Collection, has acquired 14 Godzilla films from Toho in Japan. Uh, this is basically all the films of the Showa era Godzilla. Yeah. And they're going to, they, we knew they were going to be doing something with it, and they have, as of this week, put all 14 of them on Filmstruck, uh, the Criterion channel on Filmstruck, which is their streaming service, which is like the best access we've ever had in America to the original Godzilla films. Yes, and, like, and I have not, I don't know like all the specifics of all of this, but assuming that it is like the original Japanese edits of these movies, because most of these movies were re-edited in their American release, and have like the Japanese language and good subtitles and all of that, this is like by far the easiest and most accessible of those movies are in that original format. Um, and because those re- like the home video releases of those movies have been so all over the place for one of them in particular um, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla the canonically second best Godzilla movie ever made just trailing behind the first one and like just ahead of probably Shin Godzilla I, don't, I would have to reconsider my rankings for number three because I never went back to that with Shin Godzilla but Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla had like one DVD release over here, went out of print almost immediately after the 50th anniversary of Godzilla, which was in 2004, and is like $200 or something on Amazon. And I have, that again, that's my fucking one of my favorite Godzilla movies, and now it's just up there, and I can just watch it. I just have to have a, an account, and I can just watch that now. And that's a weird... So Sean is leaving this podcast as of tonight to go watch yeah, Godzilla. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I might just, you know, maybe while we're recording the podcast, I'll just, like, sign up for an account and start watching the movie. I don't know. But um, uh, what's yeah. most exciting, I think, is that it's cool they're on Filmstruck. This is a bigger indication of what we'd heard, which is that Criterion is prepping a box set. Um, kind of maybe similar to their Zatoichi box set from yeah. 2014, I think. Um, and, you know, Zatoichi was actually in a similar situation where it was always going to take someone with the muscle of the Criterion Collection to wrangle those films over here into good quality. And they did it with Zatoichi. It looks like they might be doing it with Godzilla. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'll give my prediction. They usually do those kind of sets either in July or November. But I think we're getting it. And that is going to be a wonderful thing. Because I haven't seen most of these. Right. Because there's you have had the, like... Wherewithal to like go after the whole collection, but it is scattered to the winds. Yeah, because I've and been like because my collection of these movies is so sh- like scatter shot because it's like whenever there's a release from some other weird company that's like ah like get this and yeah. then like hope like oh fuck if they have King Kong versus Godzilla on there I wonder if that's like finally like, I can see the fucking Japanese version of that movie again it's like all, if all anyone it. could get it it's yeah. them so like I am very very excited to see what they've done with this and if there's a box set that is like definitive. Man, I'm excited to watch these because I never have. And that's going to be so cool. And Criterion just, they keep finding ways to surprise us. So that's awesome. Uh, And Sean, let's see the next one. Um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yes. 
We had heard about this before. This is the animated Spider-Man movie from Sony that is like they're doing their mainline like MCU Spider-Man with Marvel, but they're also going to start making these animated films. This is the one written by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, recently fired from Star Wars yeah. fame, um, but who have done lots of other great things like 21 Jump Street. And it is directed by, um, I forget their names, but two very good animation directors. Um, yeah, people keep saying like it's Phil Lord and Chris Miller's movie. No, go to fucking IMDb and look it up, Polygon. Yeah. Just call you out. You had it wrong. Anyway, it's directed by other people. Give them their proper fucking credit. It's, but, it's like um, the Nightmare Before Christmas. Christmas yes. Yeah, be, like everyone just says this Tim Burton movie. It's like, it's not. It's not. Like he to, was involved in the production. To be fair to them, that movie is literally called Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Sure. It's very... Like that movie like lies to you. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway... Um, but they, we finally got a trailer for it. We knew it was going to have Miles Morales, but other than that, we didn't know much. I am so excited for this movie, Sean. Yeah, that it looks amazing. Is fucking unbelievable! It just it's because it's I don't know quite like how they're doing the animation style. It like looks like pseudo three D. Like it almost looks like the way that like the Arc System Works games, like Dragon Ball Fighters, looks or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, a lot of times it looks 2D and then like a camera movement happens and he's just like, wait, is this all modeled in 3D? Like what the fuck is, like it looks awesome. It looks awesome. It's very kinetic. Like yeah. the way Spider-Man moves, the way it uses color and shade is incredible. You and I have been saying for years on this podcast, more comic book movies should be animated. Yeah. And like, this is it. Like we had Batman Mask of the Phantasm 30 years ago. And finally we get another theatrical animated yeah. you know, superhero movie. I know like DC and Marvel do their home video ones. And sometimes those are really good, but it's not the same. Yeah. This is like proper animated. And we're getting Miles Morales. And we're possibly getting other versions of Spider-Man. That is what that Spider-Verse subtitle indicates to me. And I just, I couldn't be more excited. Like this immediately shoots up there with Batman Ninja. I am excited for this. Yeah. I love that we are getting animated Spider-Man. Because just in the like 90 seconds of footage here... There's a sense of kinetic movement to that that you don't usually get in Spider-Man movies. Yeah, I'm so and his costume is so good. Yeah, and it's it's just something that it feels it feels so gratifying to see the trailer and have this like confirmation that this is not just like some like weird bargain bin. Yeah, animated version of like ah like let's just throw together a whatever team and like give them a pittance it's, of money and have them make a movie like this looks like Sony's like putting effort behind this it's not Spider-Man meets the minions exactly yeah which you know I know that's a different studio they still could have done that yeah alright uh, let's see and Sean before we do the Game Awards announcements um, so Lucas Pope the developer of a little game called Papers Please which yes. you might remember from the olden days of 2013 oh so long we are so naive back then Jonathan tweeted the other day that the PS Vita port of Papers, Please, which y'all, including me, forgot was a thing, is finally coming out on December 12th. And I, this is notable, because here's the thing. I love Papers, Please. Me too. But I loved it a long time ago. This game was on our 2013 top 10 list, which was recorded as episode 75. This is episode 217. This port was announced in 2013. It has somehow taken them four years to make a PS Vita port of Papers, Please. One, why? <laughs> Two, why bother at this point? Like, put it on Switch. People will buy it there. Like, if it were on Switch, I'd buy it tomorrow. I'm probably not going to pick up the PS Vita port of Papers, Please in 2017. This is just nuts, especially because I remember this being one of our early games we kind of... 
uh, evangelized for on yeah. the show, and it was I mean we were juniors in college, right? Yeah, it's been like, so long. That's pre our top one hundred stuff list. Yes. like that. When I contextualize it that way, it's like holy. Shit. I don't think we had a real microphone yet. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, we just recorded the podcast by shouting really loud into the ether and like hoping that like <laughs> something picked it up. All right, so that's funny. And now let's talk about the Game Awards announcements. Uh, I did not see the Game Awards live for the most part. I caught like the last 40 minutes uh, because I was out seeing a movie, The Disaster Artist. It's very good. No time to review. Um, but what I saw, actually, I thought it was a pretty cool show. Mm-hmm. Like, I like Jeff Keighley. I think his heart is in the right place. And I like that they had a big orchestra. And they gave some cool awards, like um, Melina Jurgens winning uh, Performer of the Year for uh, Hellblade. Yeah. Uh, Hellblade won a couple cool awards. Um, everything, like, there were no awards that I found myself, like, vehemently disagreeing with. They were all games that, like, would be near the top of my own lists and stuff. They, they did not give PUBG a dumb award. So, like, there was a lot of cool stuff on the awards side. But, of course, from a news side, the Game Awards are notable because they're kind of like a mini E3 or something at this sure, point. Yeah. Where they do a lot of big reveals and trailers. Um, so, let's talk about what we saw. Uh, they're making a World War Z video game. And I say they because I didn't bother to research who... And I don't know why I feel like they missed the boat on that by, I don't know, five, six years. Yeah, like, like it was something that I, it took me in a disturbingly wrong amount of, or long amount of time to put into my head that, like, World War Z and Daisy, which is such an old fucking game that I think is still not technically out yet, yeah. is, like, one of those super early, like, Arma mods that sort of turned into a little game of, like, that sort of, like, survival, like, you die and you lose all your stuff kind of game that PUBG is sort of... Like, it, like it's kind of like PUBG before PUBG was PUBG. Yeah, exactly. Like, but so fucking long ago, and it was like I couldn't put those things. I couldn't contrast those things. It was like it was like a fourth dimensional cube or something. It's like this information yeah. doesn't make sense. I can't comprehend what you're telling me. Why would you make either of these things? Yep. Uh, From Software teased their new game. They are the makers of uh, Dark, the Souls. Dark Souls yeah, and Bloodborne. It's called Shadows Die Twice, or at least that was the text that, that was, showed yeah, up. That was the teaser. It's like, it was a gross meat-looking thingy, and yeah, it's there's not a lot of, to glean from that other than from software is making a video game. Which is cool. Yes. I, I assume that they were, sure, but it's yeah. nice for them to like be like, we're making a video game, and it's going to be like gross and meaty. It's like, I already knew that from software. I played a lot of your games. I kind of know that. Yeah. Uh, the creators of Firewatch are making a new game called In the Valley of Gods about exploring ancient Egypt. Yeah. Uh, the trailer at the time I went to look at it had been taken down on a copyright strike. I don't know <laughs> why, so I haven't seen the trailer. But I like it's that a good Egypt, trailer. I like that Egypt is a thing now in yeah, games. It's a good trailer. Um, in the midst of Breath of the Wild, have a very good night at the awards, and I have to say I really enjoyed seeing Eiji Onuma and. Uh, the, the director of the game, um, whose name I forget at the moment, uh, up there on stage. They yeah, were cool. That was my favorite part of the awards, was their like uh, acceptance speech, basically. It was very cool. Uh, and they like they seemed so genuine about it. Yeah. Like like you know everyone loves your game, but like they still are so humble. I loved it. Yeah, I think like the director went up there and it's one of the fun things about understanding Japanese is I know what they say before the translator says it, and the guy yeah. said something of like, I had all the stuff I wanted to say and I got nothing, basically, is what he said. Like, that's my translation of it. I think the translator just didn't even <laughs> translate that part. It is the coolest thing to me about the Game Awards at this point is that, you know, I've never necessarily felt like games needed their own Oscars or something. But it is cool to have a centralized venue where the people who put all their hard work into these games can get up on stage and be recognized. There's no reason they don't deserve it the way TV people deserve Emmys right. or movie people deserve Oscars. Like, it's cool to get to see that. Yeah. And, you know... 
Eiji Aonuma is a legend for good reason and stuff like that. So anyway, uh, but I'm saying this because in the middle of the show, they announced that the second Breath of the Wild DLC, the Champions Ballad, which we've all been waiting for because Nintendo promised end of the year, but we kept waiting and there was no announcement, no announcement, and they finally put out a trailer and said, it's out tonight. And that was awesome. Yeah. I, I literally I got home, saw that, downloaded it, and I've been playing it ever since. Um, again, I'll review it in full next week. It is a substantial piece of DLC. Cool. It adds at least 16 shrines to the game. And they're not like just combat shrines or something. That would be yeah. kind of mean. Yeah. They're very good. They're some of the best shrines in the game. Adds a whole new dungeon, a legendary beast at some point, which I haven't gotten to. All new cutscenes. It's very, very good. And um, if you have not bought the DLC pass, it's only $20 for this and the one that came out over the summer. Um, I'm really glad Nintendo does not seem aware of how other people price their DLCs yet. Sure, yeah. Because someday they'll figure that out and will be ripped off, but so far we have not been, and that's very nice. This is more in the vein of like... Uh, you know, CD Projekt Red DLC at the moment. Right. Uh, who they will also catch on at some point that they can charge more than $10. Yeah. But until then, uh, Soul Calibur 6 was announced. Yeah, that's cool. I've been wanting a new Soul Calibur game for a long time. I, I love Soul Calibur. This trailer was good. I love it ends with Step into the Stage of History. Yeah. So that was Soul cool. Soul still burns. Uh, Reggie got up and announced that Bayonetta 1 and 2 are coming to Switch on February 16th. That's awesome because they were always on my two playlist for the Wii U. Right. The Wii U came and went, and I still want to play them, and they're coming out on Switch February. That's awesome. And they are developing Bayonetta 3 as yeah. a Switch exclusive. That's so cool that Bayonetta yeah. is getting another one. Um, it was definitely a hit on the Wii U, so that's cool. But a hit by the standards of the right. Wii U. It's nice that they sort of like sent a like lifeboat to Bayonetta two to get it off of the Wii U. It's like come over here, like we got you've got you, we got like Mario Kart eight deluxe. Like it's great, yeah. It's like it's great over here. Yep. The the Switch, which is on pace to outsell the Wii U by year's end, which right. is. I, I, you can't there's no comparison like I can't like this would be like if the Dreamcast happened and then Sega did the PS2 right that's not what happened you know uh, anyway uh, the highlight of all of this was we got a long weird trailer for Death Stranding uh, I hope that's not a game I, I hope that our thing that we've said I think every time this game has come up is that I just wanted to be a thing where Hideo Kojima gets like his the weird people in the movie industry he's really obsessive about, which is Norman Reedus, Guillermo del Toro, and Mads Mikkelsen, and he just gets them together because he wants to hang out with them, and he uses this as an excuse to hang out with them in like, a weird fucking trailer, and he just does that like once every year, and that's all the Death Stranding is. I, that's all I want it ever to be. Me it's going to disappoint the shit out of us when it becomes a video game. Because here's the thing: this trailer, Sean, was eight and a half minutes long. <laughs> And still, so we've had two other at least five-minute trailers and now an eight-and-a-half-minute one. Name one gameplay system at work in Death Stranding. Is it Some, a... Someone shot a gun in this trailer. This, that's okay. the first thing of, like, the gun was fired in this trailer. It's going to be a third-person shooter. Who knows? Like It wasn't have... from a third-person shooter perspective, but it, a gun was shot, which means there are guns in the game. We have no idea what kind of game it is. We basically Each trailer looks like a different world in continuity. We don't really know who the characters are. We don't know how you play it, any of that stuff. Like, And also, I've been thinking about this. They've been working on this for two years and made like 20 minutes of cinematic trailers. Have they had time to work on the game? Right. I'm I just assume not... that this must be a cinematic from the game that they just pulled. Like, kind of like what The Last of Us Part 2 one was. It Maybe. must be. It Sean, has to be. Sean, you're applying logic to Hideo Kojima. 
But it just it, if if it's not, you're right. There's no video game because you'd spend so much time making because they're. It's a really fucking great cinematic, by the it's way. Amazing. Like, it's amazing. It's so fucking awesome. It's and I, it's one of the things I love about um like what the, these Death Stranding trends. I think this one highlights it particularly. Is it feels like. Hideo Kojima sort of like developed a lot of like cinematic techniques for like shooting video game cutscenes in Metal Gear Solid Five, and like that game is fucking terrible for that shit. But then like he's using it here of of this like kind of like super long take thing he does of that it's all basically one shot. It's a very like physically present camera, which is obviously stuff that like you like the physically present camera idea is interesting because it's not a physically present camera at all. It's an entirely digital camera. But, like, taking advantage of the fact that it's all totally digital, it's a video game, like, real-time cutscene, you don't need to cut when you don't want to cut. Like, you can just move the camera wherever the fuck you want to move the camera. There's no physical constraint to that. And him playing around with that, I think, is really interesting. It is. But I am more excited for Death Stranding as a movie than I am a game. Exactly. So yeah. Again, I don't want the movie either, because the movie has to have a plot. You know, Kajama can't put together a fucking plot to save his life. He's never done it. So it's like... Don't do that. Don't do a fucking movie. Don't do a video game. Do what Hideo Kojima has always been the best at doing, making really cool fucking trailers. Go see the trailers. Go back and watch the trailers from Metal Gear Solid 5. They're awesome. They're way better than the actual game. I just want his trailers. That's all I yeah. want. No, I, I don't know it. how you monetize that. It's just what I want, though. I want the Showtime 18-part Hideo Kojima series where he just does avant-garde shit. Exactly, yeah. That are yeah. that just get to be weird, like basically trailers, but like yeah. you don't have to. They don't have to advertise something. I think he has an amazing skill set, and I'm just not sure games are the place for it. But yeah. we'll talk about that in the future. There were a couple other little things. We're out of time. I said half hour. We're moving on. Okay. Any other final reactions from the Game Awards shot? Um, the the dude from The Way Out was crazy. And oh, that said, was fun. Fuck the Oscars and all that shit. And Jeff Keighley seemed absurdly uncomfortable and I couldn't watch anymore at that point so I stopped watching uh, yeah Jeff Keighley probably shouldn't be hosting I think he's very good at producing the whole thing yeah but and also like make sure if you're gonna have like live interview someone make sure that they're a sane person or sure. that they're not drunk or high or whatever was up with that dude because he fucking was out there A for effort a for effort, yeah. I, I would like for the, a lot of like the consumerist stuff to move out of the Game Awards That's at some weird, point. Yeah. It's like, it's the Game Awards are, well, we should talk about this again next week because I'd like to get into this in more detail. But like, I, I, there's part of me really likes the Game Awards for the like having someone like Eiji Aonuma up there, you know, having someone like any of the developers up there being able to accept awards, talk about what they do. I think it's great to have a venue for that. But then, like, having trailers and game reveals be a huge part of that. Having all of, like, the eBay and McDonald's commercials and all that That's stuff. That's the gross. Yeah. yeah. And, and, then, and then having, like, to do this grandstanding bullshit of, like, being like, yo, man, no fucking video games are the best art form. Fucking fuck the Oscars. Fuck movies. Movies are bullshit. Like, books are bullshit. Like, it's all, like, it's all about video games. Having to do that. That wasn't planned, but yeah. But, but it's, I think, but there's a larger attitude because I watched sure. probably, like, the first 30 minutes of it or so and I think they got better once it got near the end but there was a lot of an attitude um, projected I think all throughout it like a lot of things that Jeff Keighley was saying about like this is the best art form like the best medium the medium all of it it's like you having to say that over and over again like people at the Oscars don't get up there and fucking say like movies are the best art form it's the thing that we're, we all love movies so much movies are amazing right guys no he doesn't because everyone just assumes like yeah fucking movies are cool 
Yeah. You can just assume that... In fact, the Oscars have a clear inferiority complex where they clearly just want to be a show about musical theater. Sure, Every year. Yeah. So... Something that, like, once the Game Awards get to this point where everyone there can just be like... Just like, we can just assume video games are cool, they are worth it, and we can treat them seriously. That's all you have to do. You just have to go in with that attitude. And the more and more you go into this attitude of having to prove it, the more and more juvenile it seems. And, and it's, I, just, it's self-defeating. I understand, and I understand the growing pains yeah. Like with that because they are trying something new here. Um, but I agree. I think you can lay off that. Lay off, the eBay thing was fucking weird. Yeah. Like, you have to finance your show. That's totally fine if you need to run ads. Like, everyone does it. Not going to blame you for that. Doing it the way they did it was weird. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, maybe we'll talk about that more later. Uh, 34 minutes, we'll say, is the cutoff. So, deep breath. Is an ha, episode ha, we're going to talk ha, about. Ha, ha, not, ha. Did, hey, Jonathan. Listen. That did, was a great pun. Didn't mean to do that, Sean. You didn't sure hell bent on making those, huh? Oh, God. Anyway. So. We have a lot to get through with our Stephen Macho, Moffat retrospective. <laughs> Stephen Macho episode. Different thing. Uh, as, I, as I said, uh, the centerpiece of this discussion will be my rankings, which is both gives us a chance to talk about all these episodes again and revisit them, but also gives me a chance to be OCD and gives you a chance to react in real time to a list. You have no idea what it is. Yep, this is one of our weird ongoing segments of this podcast we do every once in a while where, Jonathan, you decide on your own to just go off and make a stupid fucking list of something, and then I'm just like, okay, I guess, sure. But it's I have fun. no input. I have no idea what the rankings are. I have some educated guesses about where some episodes are going to be on the list, but... I have no idea what you did with this list. Yeah, at least with uh, this era of Doctor Who, you and I are pretty much in lockstep on most things. Yeah, we've had we've talked about these episodes a lot already. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that soon. I don't want to start with that. Okay. So, Sean, I guess let's go back to what we were saying earlier in the show, which is that, you know, let's give a little history first. What, you know, for those of us maybe who haven't been here the whole time, what do we mean by the Stephen Moffat era? We right. mean the era where Stephen Moffat has been executive producer and showrunner. Showrunner is not an official credit in TV, but it's a role you know someone plays. Um, and Stephen Moffat took over in 2010, starting with the season five premiere, The Eleventh Hour. He's been in that role ever since. Um, the way Doctor Who does it is there's always two executive producers on Modern Who. Um, and I know throughout the Matt Smith era, it was Moffat, and then it was like a different person each year for Matt Smith, which I think... We never look at those people enough. I wonder if that like was part of the weird scheduling inconsistency. Um, with Peter Capaldi, it's always been Brian Minchin has been the other uh, executive producer. And Chris Chibnall will be bringing on... Uh, I forget who's coming on with Chibnall, but same thing. So there's been him and another producer. But Stephen Moffat has been, you know... In effect, the head of Doctor Who since the year 2010. Yeah. He's also just been, like, the other side of it. He's been the face of it for, yes. for so long. Of Like, in, every time there's, like, a like a big, like, oh, everyone's going to Comic-Con and stuff, he's always there with, like, whoever's playing the Doctor and the Companion and that stuff. Like, he's in the interviews. Like, he's the, like, the man behind the scenes who is put in front of the camera for interviews and that kind of stuff to sort of vouch for the show. Yeah. And the way I want to start this is actually go back to the beginning. Um, because for me, like... My time watching Doctor Who live and writing about it and covering it starts with Moffat. Um, And remember that when he took over from Russell T. Davies, who was the the previous showrunner and the man who brought Doctor Who back from the dead, literally, um, 
Well, the second time, the first time didn't go so well. Nineties, it's not yeah. true. Anyway, um, brought it back to the BBC, and you know, always Russell T Davies deserves credit for that. During the Russell T Davies era, though, Stephen Moffat was a prominent writer, and he did one story a season uh, during the four Russell T Davies seasons, and those are all classics, deservedly yeah. so. And they were, if not always, the best episode of the season, very near the top. Like I think with series one, you can argue: is it Doctor Dances or is it Dalek? You know, sure, yeah, but um, it's near the top, certainly. So when he was announced that he would be taking over the show, um, I for one was very excited because it seemed like the natural next step. He was uh, Stephen Moffat had show running experience. He had done the show Coupling on the BBC, so his background was actually in comedy. Um, he had written all these great episodes for Russell T Davies, and it was time for him to take over. And as we have talked about a lot, the Russell T Davies era didn't really end on top in a lot of ways. Right. Like, it kind of sputtered to the end. Series 4 is like Series 2 and 3 and 1, up and down. The specials are good in some places, great in some places. Uh, some of the others are kind of dull. The end of time is half a good story, half a bad story. And it felt like it was time for Doctor Who to get an injection of energy and I want to bring us back to this moment when the 11th hour aired. I know you came to it on DVD a little later, but I yeah. think you can still put yourself in this mindset. For me, it was a revelation. It was like Doctor Who clicked into place in a way it hadn't during those RTD years, which I had been catching up on on DVD. And actually, people forget, at the time, those didn't even air on BBC America. Like the, the right, Rus yeah. Rusty Davis series, those aired on sci-fi over here and not at the same time. I believe Series 6 was the first one that aired... Um, day and date in the US yeah. uh, In the UK And so Series 5 was delayed I pirated it back in the day I'll just tell you So that's how I watched it live um, I think I'm out of the statute of limitations on that Because yeah. it was 8 years ago Jeez, Which is yeah. nuts But Sean of The 11th hour is an episode we're going to have to talk a lot about It is this era's spearhead from space Yeah And it is an amazing episode And it also that And then going into Series 5 Just felt like Oh my god it's working. Like, it has clicked into place in a way maybe it wasn't before. Matt Smith is this amazing actor. Stephen Moffat made the jump from writer to showrunner beautifully. This feels great. Is that kind of how it felt to you at the time, too? Yeah, of that is something of, especially again, like, I've, I've, um, to, to give, like, update, I just rewatched Listen. Um, last night is the, so I've been rewatching all of modern Doctor Who. Um, and, 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 like, basically mostly there. And for, like, the Peter Capaldi stuff, that stuff's so recent. I've right. rewatched it. Relative, like I've rewatched series eight and nine all the way through at least once, so like I, I don't really need to rewatch this again, but I'm going to um, to catch up for uh, twice upon a time. But yeah, like the RTD era of the show is is interesting, and like I like a lot of it, but it's so up and down. It's like just so fucking frustratingly inconsistent, um, even for I think Doctor Who standards. Um, that, that like, you know, Doctor Who is a show that lives and dies by individual episodes. And that means that some seasons are going to have, like, every season is going to have at least one bad episode. That's, like, always been the case. Um, but, like, the RTD years, that was usually more than one. It was usually more than two. It was usually more than three. Like, it was, like, four to five to six bad episodes a season, depending if you're season two or season four, right? Um... And, and that was something that's, like, really hard for me to get into the groove of that show. And then some of the broader level um, directions for the Doctor of, like, making the Doctor this very romantic hero. Like, always pairing him with, like... And, and it's one of the things they sort of got away with this with Catherine Tate a little bit, which was nice. But generally speaking, like, very young companions. 
um, young female companions, tying them together romantically, very specifically, and the female companion pines after the Doctor, and all that shit is just, like, not the character. It's not the show. Like, it's okay to have this brief sort of, like, diversion in that direction and kind of play with it, but it was too much for too long. And not sustainable. And not sustainable. And then Stephen Moffat comes in and I think just, like, reboots the show in so many ways in terms of the tone, in terms of, like, the visual aesthetic, in terms of, like, the music with Murray Gold, like, brings a very different musical style to it. Um, and just... And then the interpretation of the Doctor with Matt Smith coming into the role and having his own version of the Doctor. I think also, like, Stephen Moffat's sort of broader-level ideas of who the character of the Doctor is is more sympathetico, sorry, with, with my understanding of that character as well, which is built off of, like, a foundation in classic Doctor Who, not modern Doctor Who, and that it's, like, it's mostly, like, aromantic. It's mostly asexual. It's, like, this sort of, like, weird, rebel, goofy idiot who's bouncing around time and space, never really knows what he's doing, wants to play the hero, but is never really quite the hero. Like, he wants to be a hero, but he's never quite that. Like, he's never that suave. He's never that cool. Like, he wishes he was suave and cool, but he's never quite there. And that's just not quite what the RTD idea of the Doctor was, particularly with David Tennant. And so I do think that when Stephen Moffat came in with the 11th Hour, like, it, like his sensibilities with the Doctor Who for modern Doctor Who and my sensibilities with Doctor Who coming from classic Doctor Who lined up so much more than in the RTD years and years and has proved like more and more true, particularly once we got to Peter Capaldi. And it's one of the interesting things, though, talking about all of this, is that if you go back to Series 5, its structure is an RTD season structure. Sure. In yeah. that uh, Moffat did not yet. He would, but for that first season, he didn't change the structure, which is 13 episodes, three two-parters, and the last two-parter is also the finale. And that there will be an arc lightly seeded throughout that gets paid off. Like, just in its skeletal structure, season five doesn't make any major changes from what RTD was doing. And I'd kind of forgotten about that. Like, when you go back and watch season five now, and tell me if you felt the same way, it feels very different from where Doctor Who has gone since yeah. then. It's very good, and I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying, like, it was the beginning of something. And what it was, if you look at it, is it was the RTD model done, I think, to its absolute best. Yeah. And because what you had there was the little changes he made, I think actually in Series 5, structurally, the changes are very small, but they have these ripple effects. Like, it's not someone says Torchwood every episode, right. and that's your quote-unquote arc. Yeah, there's it's not that, like the words Bad Wolf are just like graffitied on the back of the, like, yeah. the set, which never really pays off in a like thematically no. consistent way. So what he did that season was the cracks in time. Yeah. But the cracks in time aren't just something that pop up here and there. They become a major plot point as soon as episodes four and five, the Angels two-parter. Yeah. And there are major changes in the status quo. And there's another major change in the status quo later when we bring Rory into the TARDIS, who later disappears because of those cracks. So there's this constant momentum in that arc, but that arc is still the same thing that's kind of lightly there, shows up every once in a while. But the thing is, this time, it wasn't building to a bad Dalek story. It was building to the Pandorica Opens and the Big Bang, which is a great two-parter. And is a story that is about paying off some of these plot things, but is moreover about paying off the 11th Doctor and Amy Pond's relationship up to that point. Yeah. And if anything, if season five did anything wrong, it's that it's too good. Because season six and seven, we've talked about a lot, stumble in a lot of ways with, I think, and, and it, it occurred to me watching through them again this time what it is, it's just sequelitis. 
It's sequelitis. Sure. It's that season six very clearly tries to do like one up what they did in series five. Like series five, we had a big end of the world like plot thing with the cracks in time. This time, big end of the world thing because the doctor's dead yeah. and like try to go bigger and it collapses under its own weight. This is also where they start to change up the structure. So season six and seven are both two part seasons. That didn't really work. No. Um, I think when you get to Peter Capaldi, it's actually pretty interesting how much the structure has changed. They're down to 12 episodes a season. Um, two-parters are like there when they need them, but not like a necessity. Um, and arcs are much more sort of internal and character-based. Like, by the time you get to the Capaldi, the show has changed very, very radically. Yeah. But you have these two years in season six and seven where there's these growing pains. A lot of great writing gets done. I think the arcs start to collapse. Even then, I think the ambition and the character writing make those arcs still in some ways more interesting than some of the RTD arcs. I would say so. Not that I will ever defend the Doctor Who arc. That's bad. Yeah. Um, Everything in Series 7 with the mini Doctor Who puns never pays off in anything particularly good. But... It, if you consider that, like, the real finale to Season 7 is, like, the 50th special, yeah. then it works better. So yeah, yeah, I agree that, like, once, if you put, if you rope in Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor into Season 7, it makes that work yeah. much better. But, yeah, it is something of that, and it's something I think we talked about either last week or maybe two weeks ago on the, on the podcast, of that every single Moffat season is so different from every other Moffat season. Like, not necessarily always, like, some of them are different structurally, but also just in terms of, like, the idea of how do you tie together a Doctor Who season is, like... Because even though I do, do agree there's, a like, that element of sequelitis from, like, series, season six and season five, even then, like, season six... What season six tries to do is so much more serialized than any other previous right. Doctor Who season in modern Doctor Who. Like, it's so much more, like... Like, every single episode is really building up the story. And, like, and, and whenever there's actually, like the, like, the weird little detours, like the pirate episode and stuff, or later in the season you have, like, the God Complex and the Girl Who Waited, well, like, like the God Complex and the Girl Who Waited are great episodes. They feel weirdly out of place in that season. It's the big structural issue that season to me. Yeah, because so much of, like, you have these really big episodes of, like, having this two-parter opening thing uh, that are like big season like building episodes and having a two-parter right in the middle which are huge season building episodes those that like the good man goes to war and let's kill hitler in the middle so changes the idea of how you structure that season and makes it so much more serialized where it kind of feels like there's like kind of it's almost like like a doctor who movie that got like dispersed across a whole season of Doctor Who in a kind of like haphazard fashion and then like ending with A Wedding of River Song and then you have like some like pockets of like some really brilliant episodes of Doctor Who like Doctor's Wife and God Complex sort of shot in there in between but it doesn't congeal in any way that makes sense. Yeah, and but I think you know having rewatched the whole era recently what you get is as I said I think sequelitis is part of it. It's also I think what you're hinting at which is that Stephen Moffat just feels like someone to me from the outside looking in who doesn't ever want to do the same thing twice. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, I did Series 5. I could just do that again. I'm not going to. And so Series 6 is very different. I don't think it works entirely. I love the ambition. Series 7, same way. Where, like, they're trying to do new things. I think some of the stuff in Series 7 with Clara is tremendously wrong-headed and kind of gross in some ways and how much she's just a plot object. Yeah. But also, like... There, that's a failure that is very much redeemed by that they kept working at it. 
Like, Moffat also seems like someone to me who learns from a lot of his mistakes as a writer. Yeah. And you get that a lot when you get to the Capaldi years, because I think there's a whole thing for me watching these where, like, the Doctor, in some weird way, his arc seems to mirror Moffat's arc as a writer, in that, like, the whole Matt Smith thing is, like, getting too big, uncomfortably big, like, this mythical kind of figure, and it kind of starts to collapse creatively as the Doctor's life collapses in some ways. And then the key thing of Series 8 when we bring on Peter Capaldi and the show calms down a lot is these existential questions. Am I a good man? I've lived 2,000 years. Not all of them were good. Yeah. And like, what does, what does it even mean to be the Doctor right now? And Series 8 is all about that. And Series 9 kind of ups that ante and Series 10 ups that ante. But one of the things I see that changes in his both writing style and show running style, which are two different but related things... Which we'll have to talk about. Yeah. Um, because I actually would say uniformly he's a pretty good showrunner. He's very good at assembling scripts and getting other writers to good places. Yeah. Like that basic job, like what we would call script editor in Classic Who, he's excellent at that. And I yeah. don't think that ever wavers, you know? Yeah. Um, but as his own writer and how he structures seasons, one of the things I find so interesting about the Peter Capaldi years is they become much more of like a sober drama in some ways and that they cut out a lot of the big bombastic stuff. It's there because you can never do Doctor Who without it. Right. But they cut it down a lot. It's a lot more about character psychology more than about sort of myth-making and time travel and big stories. And I think some of that is just we have a new Doctor. We're going to change the storytelling style a little bit. But like Series 8 is this really interesting season that... The Doctor's not the main character of Series 8. Clara is. And it's about Clara's relationship to these two men in her life, Danny Pink and Doctor Who. Yeah. And you go through that season, and one of the things he starts doing, and you start seeing the co-writing credits here, which we'll talk about later, and I don't know if that's because of a change in how BBC gave credits out, or if it was literally he was just more hands-on with the scripts. It's always felt to me like he got more hands-on with the scripts, because there's a continuity of character writing that starts popping up with Capaldi and Coleman in that season and carries through seasons 9 and 10 that I think was not there in the RTD years, not there necessarily in the Smith years, and in Classic Who can come and go at times, you know, how consistently you're writing characters. The voices feel so consistent, and the focus shifts so far away from, like, big story arcs like enemies in the background to... Where are these characters at week to week? It doesn't matter if it's a standalone Mark Gatiss story or a big Moffat episode. We're going to move the characters forward. And the other big change he makes is Moffat stops writing just big arc episodes. Like, listen, we're going to talk about that later. Very high on my rankings because yeah. I, I think it's the true beginning of the Capaldi era. Because that's the one where it's the first standalone episode he had written since the RTD years. If you don't yeah. count some of the Christmas specials. And it clearly signals, like, we're going to be doing this differently from now on. And this is all a long way of me saying what I've loved about these eight years and six seasons of Doctor Who, because one season aired over two years and one year we got no season, right. um, is that they've evolved so much. It's never gotten dull. I remember back in the season seven days, we were both like, maybe Moffat's run his course. Maybe this isn't going to work long term. Yeah. We had a lot of conversations about that. And the best was yet to come, by far. And it clicked into place, and he kept evolving, and his last two seasons are easily the best. And I think that whole evolution is just, as a fan of TV, and particularly as a fan of Doctor Who, has been really fascinating and valuable to follow. So what would you add to that? Yeah, like, it's something that I've been thinking about um, this a lot, because of doing the modern Doctor Who rewatch stuff. And then also, 
I, it's been fun doing this like concurrently with um, this like the bonus podcast thing we do of going back and like I cherry pick these episodes from classic Doctor Who, and we had this conversation about how classic Doctor Who has like better storytelling like like on average almost like across the board than modern Doctor Who typically does mm-hmm. that like because there's more of that focus as part of it but there's also just like fucking classic Doctor Who for people who haven't watched it is a truly exceptional show if you can get past some of the like ways in which it's dated because of course obviously it's going to be fucking dated like if you go back to the RTD era like like you know season five or season one that's super fucking dated now if you can get past that and access like the writing and the storytelling, everything that's going on there, classic Doctor Who is like a truly exceptional show and was for like you know over ten years, like with like really really high quality average sci-fi storytelling, and something of that we talked a lot about with Peter Capaldi of this sense of that there's this kind of going back to basics element to it of being like okay like let's reset the character a bit more like let's go back to this idea of like who the Doctor kind of used to be, this classic Doctor Who style, make him an older character again, so to like, which like, like by necessity changes his relationship with the companion, all that kind of stuff. And I think part of that is this recommitment um, in the Peter Capaldi years to this like, what I think of like ideas-based or like theme-based storytelling first, and that, like that is the emphasis um, which is re- which is like all that classic Doctor Who is. Classic Doctor Who is so like idea based, like idea for first storytelling. Like that's you know, and that's like you know, classic Star Trek. Like that's like that era of science fiction. It's very idea first storytelling. Obviously, like characters are important. Like like plot, blah blah blah. Like all that stuff is important and is there. But the emphasis is on communicating an idea or a theme. And I think like RTD. His stuff was more of like this very like character first of like like very focused on like the melodrama of the characters and the relationship between the doctor and the companion and the like the companion and their family and all that stuff. And then Moffat was more like like Moffat in like the Matt Smith years kind of went more to like this big like plot first storytelling of like obviously ideas and themes are there, character drama is there, but it is like this bigger like plot like like maybe adventure is more the word to use, like adventure based storytelling and adventure first storytelling and mystery and that kind of stuff. And then the Peter Capaldi thing was like coming back to the sense of like, no, like that stuff is important. That stuff does need to be there. Like as you're saying, like the Peter Capaldi era has also had like this really deft, powerful character writing that is has this powerful consistency across episodes that is like particularly potent, I think, in season nine. And you can't separate it from some of the stories. Yeah, obviously like, like yeah. yeah, like if you're like you're putting this on like a triangle, like all these things are interconnected like irremovably, but because you can't put a story together without any of those elements. But it, it, to me, it is like that idea of where does your focus go? Because where your focus goes colors how you handle those other two aspects. And I think it is ultimately this like theme-based, idea-based thing. And that's where like that from that trickles down the character stuff, right? Because for RTD, it's very much like when you do that character first thing, it becomes so much about the melodrama. And that there are ideas being as- expressed about who the characters are, but it has to be filtered through so much melodrama, and that's where like the tension and the enjoyment of the story comes from, the melodrama of the relationships and where those like relationships grow and where like there's tension and conflict between the characters. That's what it felt like he always kind of excelled at and liked to do. Um, and then when it like fell down was when like the plot had to kind of take over, which is why so much of his part ones are really good because they don't have to deal with the plot that much and they can be more about the character dynamics shifting. And then part two in his finales always came and is like, well, now I have to resolve the plot and this fucking sucks because the plot was not what he was interested in. 
And I think with Peter Capaldi and where Moffat sort of flowered as a writer was that thing of like his RTD episodes were all idea first storytelling. Like oh, yeah. It was all about like this this bigger idea and bigger themes and exploring the character development through this bigger theme that he's exploring. And then you get and then when he became showrunner, it felt like he kind of they lost that along the way. And then the Peter Capaldi years, he's like, no, fuck that. I'm going to write Listen, you know? Like, I'm going to write, like, The Girl Who Died or co-write The Girl Who Died. I'm going to write Extremis. And I'm going to write, like, the season of Doctor Who. And, like, I'm going to write, like, the season of Doctor Who the way I write these individual episodes. As, like, this bigger idea about, like, companionship and grief. And that's how I'm going to explore character relationships. And that's where how you get a season nine, right? Is that you have this big, brilliant theme they are approaching. And then the characters and the plot all serve to sort of build up and explore that core theme. And that's what Doctor Who is. I agree. And I think it just, you see it click into place. And it is interesting how much, when you circle back around from like, you know, Doctor Dance's two-parters, his first episode. When you get to, like, listen, it feels like we've come full circle. Yeah. Like, he went... And I'm not putting down... He's got a bunch of great episodes in the Matt Smith years, although all of his weakest ones are concentrated there. Sure. For the most yeah. part. Like, because that's where... Six and seven, he's in the desert a little bit. But, like, he kind of, I think, goes through this evolution where I think he tries to write maybe outside what is his comfort zone. I don't know. And then you come back around and it's like, okay, this is almost what I almost imagined Moffat's Doctor Who being more of in like when season five was getting started right. than what it became. Um, but it's, and it's enough of a shift that like we're talking about this one era, but it is two eras in yes, some ways. That's like, actually how I think like of it. Like Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi, even though it's all Moffat behind the scenes, they, they are very different. Like I, there's a lot of things that, you know, clearly like Moffat is a, is a writer with an identity and you can hear his writing when you hear it. Um, but at the same time, if you, I think if you told someone who, had never heard of him or seen the earlier episodes. Watch season five, six, seven, then watch eight, nine, ten. Was that the same creative team? Like pull off all credits. Someone might say no. Clearly, someone else came in at this point. Yeah, because it's like this Clara character is completely fucking different now. Yeah, I mean, it would kind of be like if you know, like Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes also did the full third Doctor era. Right. And it's like, boy, that's a shift. You guys made a like they're both good. But this is really different. Yeah. Like, you didn't do the creepy stuff with the third Doctor. Yeah. Yeah, but like... So you get that here. And it is a fascinating evolution, though. In part because I think what we're saying, though, is as different as they are, I don't think you get the Capaldi years without some of the stumbling of the Smith years. Absolutely, yeah. Like, it's like a growing pain, not just for Moffat, but I think the show in general. Of, like, also having to, like, get to this place where you can have someone as old as Peter Capaldi play the Doctor. and And, like, get to this... Like and like, you know, work through all the sort of plot baggage and stuff that had been building up about the time war and all this. Like, there's so much that shifts and so much that the show works through. And like, the 50th anniversary is so like this. It's fulcrum. such a huge pivot point. Yeah, it's this fulcrum around which the show just like changes itself. And the time of the Doctor is like this last little thing of like we have to put the bow on this and indicate where we're going. Because I think also time of the Doctor is where Clara starts really kind of becoming uh-huh. Clara. Um, but yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, and, and as much as we're talking about the eras, I also want to talk about the characters because, like, I will, you know, I think the 11th Doctor era is weaker than the 12th Doctor era. 11 and 12 as characters are both really great. Yes. And I want to start there because I, I in my entry for The Girl in the Fireplace, not going to spoil where it is on the list, but what I wrote there, I'm just going to read a little bit of this because it, it puts my thoughts in in context and... 
It says, if you were to ask me what I think is Stephen Moffat's most impressive and important quality as a Doctor Who writer, I would say it's his ability to write for the Doctor himself. And no matter which Doctor he wrote for, whether it was one of his own creation or someone else's, and remember he wrote for Doctors 1, starting coming soon, yeah. 5 in that little Time Crash mini yeah. episode, 8 in the Night of the Doctor mini episode, he created the War Doctor, he yeah. wrote for 9 and 10 for RTD, and he created 11 and 12, so he actually does... And Tom Baker is in um, oh, Day of true. the Doctor in that one scene. Yes. And like you can have your arguments about who that is. Tom Baker is just playing the fourth Doctor, though. Yes. So let's just throw that in there, too. Either way, he would still hold the record for writing the most incarnations yeah. of the also, characters. Also, there's the, the red-nosed special, The Curse of the Fatal Death, in which there's like five fake Doctor Who's. So. Yes. So but like, there's yeah. like a hundred of them. Robert Holmes is up there because he wrote for two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. But um, uh, And to be fair, Robert Holmes wrote substantively for each of those. Yeah. Some of these are like mini-episodes. But still, Moffat wrote for a lot of them, and even in mini-episodes, he has those voices perfectly. Uh, continuing with my excerpt, his skill at cutting straight to the heart of that particular portrayal is the foundation of many of his best stories. And I was writing that about The Girl in the Fireplace because I think that's why that episode is so good is that it's the, to me, defining Tenth Doctor story. Um, but it's true of all of them. Like, he is really good at writing the Doctor. Like, unassailably good. He doesn't tend to write the Doctor out of character. Whatever he puts in the Doctor's mouth, it seems to sound right. Yeah. And also, like, he's really good and I think, like, riding those waves of where the Doctor is different and where he's the same. So 11 and 12, hugely different incarnations in so many ways. And yet they are both the Doctor. And yeah. when he goes back and writes for, like, Peter Davison in this one-off five-minute fun episode, that's the fifth Doctor. And, you know, uh, we haven't seen Twice Upon a Time. I'm guessing he's going to nail the first Doctor. It's just something he's very, very good at. And I think it's important that, you know, he... Created and did the entire runs of two whole Doctors. And RTD did that too, but one of them is only 13 episodes. Yeah. And 9 and 10 are not that different. So, yeah, yeah. like, 9 to 10 is actually an exceptionally smooth transition. Yeah. The, like, but the one thing I would like to sort of point out to complicate that is that I think, like... I think part of that is is more is less that like Stephen Moffat is really good at writing different versions of the Doctor. It's just that he's really good at writing the voice of the Doctor. No, you're right. That yeah, allows yeah. the performers to like take that because I think he, if you've seen interviews with Stephen Moffat, he talks about this all the time. That for him, like on the page, the Doctor is the Doctor. It's not that different. Like like obviously there are going to be specific things in like in the day of the Doctor when when you know David Tennant is chasing the Zygon or whatever and comes across the rabbit and gives his whole speech about I'm a time lord I'm 903 years old I, I'm like blah 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 I'm the oncoming storm all that stuff obviously he would not have given that line to to Matt Smith because it's playing off a specific thing if they're like specific like Alon Z or the bow tie or whatever he's going to like whatever specific things have been shaped by that doctor of like catchphrases or weird ticks or like physical appearance things obviously those elements are going to be unique but by and large like the man himself and i think this is like generally true about his writing because i've like read some of the scripts that he's put out there because it's interesting to sort of see that on the page the doctor is the doctor and he's so good at finding the voice of that character that i think it allows the people playing the doctor to really sort of like breathe like fully into that and it's the person playing the doctor that really finds the those differences and the nuance of how they play him no i think that's a really good way of phrasing it and it's a really important way of thinking about it and you know i don't want to downplay there are things that are i think very key to performances he writes to sometimes yeah but you're right i think in general he's good at that and i would add to that as a showrunner 
and script editor and all that, I think he's good at encouraging other writers to do it. Because yeah. you don't get... In some eras of Doctor Who, and I'm thinking specifically in RTD sometimes, it feels like it's too bland or it's not written for that Doctor or something. It tends to feel like throughout 11 and 12, you don't get a lot of incongruities except for Mark Gatiss's super bland scripts, um, of like people writing like, oh, that doesn't sound like what this doctor would say, or that doesn't sound like this era. It just feels like it's the doctor, the Ur doctor in our yeah. brains, who has a scarf on probably, and then Matt Smith or Peter Capaldi, you know, funneled it into whatever they're doing. And it means the doctor is actually also, I will say, a fairly consistent character over these six years, you know? Yeah. Um, like, Dude, like, like consistent in the sense of that, like, it feels like there's a consistent character behind that who is yeah, evolving. Yeah. Because he does change, yes. but it feels like that change is driven by character development, not just, like, by... Which is, you know, a difference with, like, classic Doctor Who is it feels like that change usually happens because it's, like, new people making the show. Change has to happen. And, and the fans can justify in their head why, like, what happened over the course of the third Doctor's run that forces him to become the fourth Doctor. I could talk about that for five fucking hours if you wanted to, but it's not really a part of the storytelling. That's more the fans bringing that. I think, like, Stephen Moffat... When the Doctor changes over the course of the, these seasons, it's because he's writing in character development, not just because the performance changed. I agree, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I've said before about the 10th Doctor is that, you know, I love David Tennant. He's kind of an inconsistent and static character to me in terms of trying to figure out, like, what is his driving motivation? Yeah. And the only way I've been, in my head canon, the way you tie 10 together is he's a manic depressive, and that, in, and that explains everything. But, right. like... I don't think that's intentional. Like, I don't think that's really what they're going for. Yeah, or and at the I, very least, like, the non-RTD-written episodes don't feel like that. It's mostly, like, the RTD yeah. episodes where that feels like that might be more of an intentional character trait. Yeah. Um, but no, I, and even then, you know, uh, one of the things I do like about, for instance, the classic Who era I've just almost finished going through is the third Doctor run. And I agree that I don't think they're intentionally necessarily putting in a bunch of character development. But you do just naturally feel the writing and the performance grow over time. Right. And like how that character changes. And I think, you know, I think Moffat does it sometimes more intentionally. But I see where he's getting actually some of that from classic Who and just that... The character, it's, you know, John Pertwee in his last episode shouldn't feel like the John Pertwee he stumbled out of the TARDIS in right. Spirit from Space. And I think that happens. He evolves in some ways. Moffat does it more intentionally, but I do like how he does it in that it feels like a natural thing that happens to the character over time. Yeah. You know, and he's very good at that. So, um, we've talked about, you know, dual roles as a writer and a showrunner. Getting into that a little more... Um, you know, we've joked before about all of the Moffat ticks about time travel stuff and whatnot. Right. Timey-wimey. Yeah, timey-wimey. But let's take that a little more seriously. Okay. What are, like, to you, the defining things about Stephen Moffat as a writer and the storytelling styles of this era, or if we want to call it these eras? Um, like, I think one of the biggest things is when he allows himself to be, like, when he's at his best, he's very experimental. Uh -huh. um, and that's particularly where he shines in the Peter Capaldi years, where you have, like, it's for me, it's like the trio of Listen, Heaven Sent, and Extremis are, like, yep. three insane fucking episodes that are so weird, so completely different from one another, utterly experimental, structured in strange ways. And I think that's, like, I think he's a, I think he's an interesting writer because he is a very... He's got a really strong fundamentals as a writer. I think he's good at basically like putting scripts together, putting plots together, like knowing how to like move from scene to scene and, and put together like a large plot that feels like it's got a good beginning, middle, and end. All that kind of like you know bread and potatoes, like meat and potatoes kind of thing that you need in a script. That for Doctor Who, 
I think Doctor Who scripts sometimes don't have that because it's a hard fucking show to write for. Mm-hmm. And you need, I think this is one of the reasons why he's a great showrunner is because he's got those fundamentals. And so all those pieces tend to feel like they're in place. It's not always there. There's obviously, you know, we're going to talk about Wedding River Song and stuff like that. There are places where there are stumbling blocks he hits, but generally he's got a really good fundamental sense of writing that carries through in the vast majority of his episodes, which is also something I would say about RTD for all of his flaws. He was a good mean potatoes kind of writer. But then also Stephen Moffat has that, like, wicked streak to him of just being like, you know, fuck it, like, let's do something weird. Let's do something crazy. Like, and because he's got a good meat and potatoes storytelling sense, that's what allows him to do the, like, let's do, like, parallel timelines and, like, crossing over and, like, do, like, the weird shit of, like, both experimenting with space and time and structure in terms of his plots. He likes to play with those things, and, and that's... When he's at his best, I think, is when he just allows himself to sort of get the toys out and play with all that shit. And, like, because, again, I, I rewatched Listen just last night. That is a fucking insane episode of television. If you, it like, is. if you put, like, did, like, the plot postcard thing of, like, write out all the plot points on a postcard and put them out together and, like, like reorder them or something impossible. like that. That would be impossible. It's just, like, it's utter insanity. There's so much shit going on and where the different characters are at and how their stories intersect, both in terms of, like, physically intersect and then thematically intersect and, like, what the episode is saying on a top level and by scene by scene. There's so much going on and it's so weird and not a lot of writers do that. Not a lot of writers can do that. Like, traditionally in Doctor Who, that has not been a thing that often. Like, this is something if you listen to our um, City of Death episode and the bonus podcast stuff for the classic Doctor Who, we talk about this, like, sort of notion of the meat and potatoes writing and, like, the experimental writing. And then also about, like, using time travel and that stuff as a narrative device in Doctor Who. Classic Doctor Who hated doing that shit. Because it's fucking hard. It's expensive. It's confusing. Most people don't understand what's going on. They don't like doing that shit. And because I think most writers wouldn't be able to handle it. And Stephen Moffat is a writer that I would say, like, more than nine times out of ten can can handle that. Every once in a while, there's that one out of ten where it's like, maybe he didn't quite nail it. But more often than not, he does, which is a fucking achievement. And they're pretty much all failures of ambition. Sure. You yes, know? yes. Exactly. And he never he never swings low. He never like goes for like an easy thing. He's always going for something weird and crazy and different, no matter what he's doing. And I think it's really interesting to go back to the original four RTD stories. Yeah. Because a lot of the things we consider like the crucial like Moffat plot elements don't come in until Girl in the Fireplace. That's the first one where he plays with time travel and like age discrepancies and all that stuff. I don't mean age discrepancies. I mean like like literally one character is aging faster than another. Yes, those sorts yeah. of things. Like, but that's his second episode. The first one is the Empty Child and the Doctor Dances, and that is just an exceptional classic style Doctor Who episode. The yeah. Doctor lands somewhere. Gets out of the TARDIS and you don't see the TARDIS until the end, and that's how it is. And it's and and actually that rewatching that episode through this process helped me understand a lot of the fundamentals of Moffat's writing that have nothing to do with timey wimey bullshit yeah. because there are a lot of them, and it's easy to focus on those because it's a lot of the Matt Smith years and his other three RTD stories are really heavy on it. Yeah, but um, the Peter Capaldi era doesn't do a ton of that. Frankly, sure. or it or does it in he, different ways. Yeah, because like, listen and extremists both have elements of that, yeah. but they're very different. Yes, um, 
And so when you cut to the heart of it, you know, like what does the empty child in the doctor dances establish to me of him as a writer is, okay, he has a great voice for the doctor. He knows the tropes of this show and how to work with and subvert them. He writes guest characters really well, which is exceptionally important for Doctor Who. He has a good voice for the companion. Rose is at her best in that one. And it created Captain Jack Harkness, who still my favorite appearance of that character, but we can get into that. I Um, like Captain Jack, but you're right. That is definitely, he's like... That's Captain Jack at his best. Maybe Tortured Children of Earth people love. I haven't seen yeah. it. Um, but that's more like... Peter Capaldi's also in that. Which is I know. Funny, but yeah. Yeah. I actually just rented that. Uh, that Because uh, I've uh, people keep telling me to see it. It's like, I'll watch it finally. Sure. I should yeah, see it's it. Good. Anyway. It's um, and I want to see the other thing Peter Capaldi was in. For Doctor yeah. Who. Yeah. No. But, but no. All of those things are there. And then with Girl in the Fireplace, he just starts layering on top. Which is exactly what you're describing. He has those fundamentals... And they're mostly always there, and that's what allows the experimentation to happen. Like, if you look at some of the craziest episodes, like Listen and Extremis, which we're going to talk about, those are both very high for me. Why they're high for me is both the experimentation and the playing with genre and stuff like that, but also at their heart, their character writing is so good. They know exactly where those characters are at that point in time. Those characters grow and change because of the story, and there's a central theme to all of it that ties together the madness. And at his best, that's what I think Moffat does. And I do think maybe he got too excited about some of the toys in the toy box during like season six and seven. Sure, yeah. Where it's like, I, I can kill the doctor and then he's not actually dead. And I can, you know, River Song, we're going to really fuck this timeline up. And, you know, series seven, why don't we just ask Doctor Who over and over again? Because here's something you forget. There are Doctor Who puns. In I think three of the four original RTD stories, he does it in the Doctor Dances. Oh, it's yeah, there, does, yeah. and it's like so he's always loved the meta too, and you can't ignore how he treats the meta aspect of it, which I don't think is wrong. Doctor Who is a fifty-year-old show, yeah, and it's hard was, to get away from. And he was the guy who presided over the fiftieth anniversary. Like you can't ignore the meta. I think sometimes he has the balance tilted too far in one direction. But I actually think at its best, like the Capaldi era, it's easy to say, oh, they it got rid of the meta in those years because it's not people screaming Doctor Who at one another. Yeah. But they're very meta in a lot of ways. Like yeah. Series 9 is a super meta season in how it deconstructs Doctor Who narrative basics. Like every Series 9 story, except the shitty Mark Gatiss one, which will say a lot, is, is taking a, a, a like fundamental Doctor Who storytelling device and... Doing it in an unexpected way. Yeah. You know? And, and then maybe Heaven Sent and Hellbent are their own thing. But, like, that's kind of how that season is built. And I think that makes some of the best stories of not just the modern run, but of Doctor Who, you know? Um, so I, I think all of those things that make Moffat the writer he is, they can lead to the bad episodes here and there. But they're also clearly what fuel the good ones. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is, like, another, if we're, like, you know, like, doing the structural analysis of the Steve Moffat as a writer... In Doctor Who, I think one of them is like to also to point out is like his love of Doctor Who is so apparent in his writing oh, yeah. of the show. Like it is so like it always has been like like it is something of where I didn't have you watched um, Doctor Who and the Curse of Fatal Death, the comedy special they did in no I've never seen that. You should watch that because it is it Stephen Moffat wrote it and it's it was when you know is in the wilderness years as as we call it of like when the show was off the air post the eighth doctor movie and it's just like this 30 minute comedy special that they made that has rowan atkinson plays the doctor i forget who plays the master in it but it's like it's just really goofy it's like i i don't know if i would call it great or anything but it's like it's really interesting because it does have some of the it absolutely plays with time travel stuff in a way that like classic doctor does not that like 
signals some of his Stephen Moffat's interest in the thing. But um, but like it also demonstrates like his love and affection for Doctor Who, both as like this big concept of like the character and the adventure and the, the stories and the ideas of it, but also the minutia and the weird bits and pointing out like all like weird inconsistencies and and where like you know the TARDIS translation matrix and like weird bits and bobbles on the Daleks and and all that kind of shit that he likes to sort of poke at the show because he has this like very childlike fan love of the show. And that's a really important uh, element to his identity as a writer. Another thing for Stephen Moffat that, like, I have a bit of a love and hate relationship with, that's usually love, but every once in a while, I think it's something that the one thing that he's, like, can sometimes not fully get away from is he has certain quirks in writing dialogue that usually he has really sharp dialogue, but every once in a while, there's a bit... And it's just like when you've watched... Like, when he's written this many fucking episodes and you've seen all of them, it's just like... Like some of like like the way he writes some speeches, the way he likes to sort of do like play with like a turn of phrase or something. There's a certain structural element of that of like oh you kind of like take thing slot out thing put thing slot like unexpected thing B in slot A and then like do like like a reversal of it in like the second half of the sentence. That's like you do this all the fucking time and sometimes it like usually it works, but when it doesn't it's like it can get a bit grating and so like some of his dialogue habits are again i think it's mostly an instance of he's written so much and you're exposed to so much of his writing it's impossible not to recognize the manner in which he writes dialogue because usually it's very good every once in a while it sort of like sticks out and be like you've written this speech about fear about seven times dude it's like it's good every time and you do a different one every time but it's also the same speech because it's the it has to be because it's the same person writing a speech about the same subject like the seventh or eighth time in a row. Sure, and it's it's one of the things that was refreshing about the Peter Capaldi years when they yeah. started was like he jettisoned a lot of that. You know, yeah. like he he forced himself to write differently and it doesn't completely disappear there. I'm not saying that Peter Capaldi's run is perfect. Yeah. But you get less of it. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, and it just feels like he evolved some of that stuff. In particular, I think like lesson and extremists are both both and I haven't seen all three of those are good examples of episodes where it's like I can like I can tell that it's Stephen Moffat writing dialogue, but it doesn't feel like Stephen Moffat dialogue, like like yeah. with a trademark, you know? Yeah, no, it's it, yeah. Um, and talking about him as a classic Who lover, we should also mention that this was like modern Who under RTD didn't engage with classic Who much. In fact, they literally right. blew up the past of the show as part of the plot. Moffat and friends made some deep fucking cuts all the time, all the time. It's usually really fucking great for me. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite deep cut of the Moffat era? Oh, jeez. That's a big Is it just question. Alpha Centauri? Alpha and... Centauri is a fucking huge one. Alpha Centauri is ridiculous. Because it's Gotta also... credit Mark Gatiss with yeah, that it's, one. Obviously, it's a Mark Gatiss episode, but it's in the Moffat era. And it's something that I feel like RTD would not have let through the cracks. No. Uh, because, like, you know, it was a bit more sort of... And for good reason, I think, particularly when the show was that early on and bringing it back and you didn't know sure, how successful yeah. it was going to be. If yeah. you had, like, episode one, Rose was the Autons and Alpha Centauri, yeah. <laughs> no one would watch it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, the Alpha Centauri bit in season 10 is really fucking good. Yeah, I, I don't know if I... I mean, some of it is just, like... I think there are there tends to be like little references and dialogue of using like old Doctor catchphrases and stuff like that, like Braveheart, Tegan kind of thing. But I guess that's like Mark Gatiss also does that. And some of it is maybe because Mark Gatiss is the other man who's like almost like uncomfortably in love with Doctor Who and like is impaired in everything he writes, even though a lot of what he writes in Doctor Who is not that good. But like 
it feels like under RTD with like like the Unquiet Dead and stuff, like Mark Gatiss couldn't get that stuff through, and then like Stephen Moffat took over, and it's like, come on, Mark, okay, yeah, you can let loose the beast. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, fuck it, put Alpha Centauri in it, yeah, fuck yeah, yeah, just do it, like yeah, like let's have a weird because again, I just very recently rewatched the Crimson Horror, and there's like a, an extended obtuse reference to the companion Tegan from the Fifth Doctor era that I just did fucking not know that. Love. Yeah, that if you don't know about like the, I think he calls her a the, the Doctor says like I once. Spent Years trying to get a, a gobby Australian back to Heathrow Airport, and then and then immediately he says like someone screams he says Braveheart Clara, which is a reference to the Fifth Doctor catchphrase. It's just like fucking nobody like if you're because it's the kind of line that like normally you just like goes like straight through most people and you don't even realize it's just been said. And then it just like for me it's like I don't like this episode that much, but I really like this one stupid fucking reference. Series ten, I feel like because they were on their way out the door is. Littered with them Like there's yeah. Alpha Centauri But like the first episode has He has a set of old Sonic screwdrivers on his desk Yeah He has a picture of Susan there Which yeah. Is that the first time They've officially acknowledged Susan in the modern series As like canon Like Well no I mean They, they bring up every now and again That he's a grandfather so, but, but, yeah. but that's different Than literally Having sure, Caroline yeah. Ford's Picture in the episode it, I think it's on the poster board In Day of the Doctor Where, like, okay. where all the other Companions are Because okay. I'm pretty sure Clara is looking at it But I love I just yeah. love that detail um, in, in the finale Doctor Falls, of course, he has he he does the catchphrase of uh, you are I, you may be a doctor, okay. but I am the, the doctor. doctor. That's the article you might say. Yeah, they, but they do those all over the place. There's in yeah. in the final conversation with the Cyberman, he's naming all the other episodes where he's beat the Cyberman <laughs> even on the moon. Yeah, that episode not doesn't exist anymore. But even on the moon, that's great. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, let's what we're talking um, about. I, I have I have come up with my answer. It is absolutely the answer. It is that he used the fucking Zygons as the main <laughs> villain in the 50th anniversary special of Doctor Who. It's like so obvious, but yeah. It's like the Zygons that were in one, I'll be like a fucking great fourth Doctor story. Terror of the Zygons is an all-time classic, but they're in one Doctor classic Doctor Who story. <laughs> the fucking Zygons. And the fact that he brought them back for that, for the 50th anniversary, and it's like, because they... The Zygons was one of the classic Doctor Who monsters that whenever there was a scene like in like the Pandorica opens or something where they just have to list off like, oh, there's all these aliens out there. And it's like there's like the demons and there's, you know, the Draconians and the Daleks and the Cybermen, the Zontarans and the Zygons. The Zygons was always one of those that were thrown in there or like the Slavine. It's just like made piles of monster names that have been Doctor Who episodes. The Zygons were always one of those. Always felt like they're building up to maybe doing the Zygons because they're pretty memorable monster even if they were only in one story and then when does he bring him back for the fucking 50th anniversary special when that's pure magic anyone else would have done the daleks it would have been a dalek story. it would have just been the daleks yeah. yeah no it's fucking zygon story it's yeah yeah no i love that i love that now there is more zygons in modern who than in classic who <laughs> yes that's absolutely true because we have the zygons there and a two-parter yeah in the like two seasons later yeah yeah no, it's great. I think that is a very good answer because it's substantive. You know, yeah. it's yeah, it's not just a, a, a one a dorky reference. It's a like critical thing in one of the biggest episodes in the entire history of the show. I love it. Um, before we move, I want to talk about some other writers and stuff, but I wanted to mention because I don't think you can completely put this aside. It's easy to forget. Stephen Moffat started another series two months before he started Doctor Who. That is very true. And that's Sherlock. Sherlock began January 2010. Uh, the 11th hour is March 2010. So the history of Sherlock has been ping-ponging back and forth with Doctor Who. 
And as Doctor Who got better, Sherlock, in my estimation, got exponentially worse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we don't have enough opportunities to shit on Sherlock because it's only on every five years. But, like, I just remember, like, 2010 was this weird atmosphere where Stephen Moffat seemed like the world's biggest genius because season one is the one really good season of Sherlock. Yeah. And it's great. And Doctor Who was great. And it's like, man, he can do no wrong. And then, you know, season two of Sherlock is around... The, that would be right after season six of Doctor Who because it's 2012. And it's like, oh, well, that was... There was one good episode there. And it's the one Moffat wrote, to be fair. So, you know, maybe he still got this. And then season three of Sherlock is like in the throes of like season seven nonsense. And it's like, yeah. uh, is this whole thing falling apart? And then you'll have like series nine of Doctor Who, which is one of the best TV seasons to ever air. And then season four of Sherlock airs, which is one of the worst to ever air. And it's like... Wow, maybe you shouldn't write two TV shows at once. Yeah, I feel like that's the lesson is like, like pick one. Pick one huge, like really demanding TV show to run. I also think, given everything we just said about Stephen Moffat, I don't think he's the man to write Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I think. Yeah, it is one of those things of where it like highlights again. I, I, this is something I talked about in the, the City of Death uh, episode is that for me it's very important. I think that this is something that Stephen Moffat knows. The Doctor is not a genius. He's not a genius time lord. He's a crazy time lord. And there's a really huge difference. And and like a big illustration of that is in the um it's in Christmas Carol, where the doctor comes in and is pretending to be Sherlock play acting Sherlock Holmes. No, that's in uh, Snowman. Is, oh yeah, no, you're right. It's in Snowman. They're both Christmas special episodes. But yeah, he comes in play acting as as Sherlock Holmes, but he can't do it because that's not who he is. Like yeah. he's smart in some really specific ways, obviously. Like you know, he's a lot, it's a lot smarter than most people, but he's a time lord. He has an excuse to be a lot smarter than most people. But he's not Sherlock Holmes. He can't just look at someone and deduce, you know, that like like their whole life story by like the crumbs on their sleeve. That's not the kind of character he is. And I and I do think that that's legitimately a thing that like Stephen Moffat maybe like he's Stephen Moffat is good at writing a certain kind of clever character that's maybe not actually like the kind of clever that Sherlock Holmes is. Well, for instance, the best character in Sherlock isn't Sherlock; it's Holmes or, uh, or sorry, Watson. Watson. Yeah. yeah, he's really good at writing Watson in that show, not yeah. Sherlock. I agree. Anyway, yeah. um, no disrespect to Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. I love you guys. Yeah. Both of you could be great doctors one day. That's true. Who knows? Oh, Martin Freeman doctor. Martin, you know what? Fucking weird. That'd be great. Actually, Martin Freeman would be a great companion. Yes. I yeah. hate to like always put yeah, him in if, that role, but like... If you have to do like... If you had to do a modern Who male companion, there'd be no better person to get than Martin Freeman because he's like... Martin Freeman is the actor you get when you need to have, cast like an everyman role and have it be the most interesting role in the TV show. Yes. It's like that's who you go to, or like, or in the movie, like the, the same Hobbit, thing with yeah. like Bilbo Baggins. It's like you need to have like like one of, if not the main character, be a like boring everyman audience surrogate, but they have to be the most interesting character in the show or the movie to make it work. He was also Arthur Dent in Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah, exactly. Guy. He's the guy you have to yeah. get to do that. He's mm-hmm. the only actor that can fucking do that. Anyway, um, all right. So we're talking about a lot about Moffat. Let's talk about though he. You you know, was also the showrunner wrangling a lot of other writers. Yeah. And by and large, I think that's always a strength of the Moffat years. Yeah, I agree. Like, there are obviously bad episodes by other writers. I don't know how he let the guy who wrote the pirate episode write another episode after that one. And the one after that one is Journey to the Center of the TARDIS, which is the worst episode of the entire Moffat era. I'll spoil an answer to a later question. Okay. But um, anyway, other than that, and I, you know, and maybe at some point he should have told Mark Gatiss, second draft. Do a second draft. Then we'll talk. Write it again. Yeah. Just revise. You know, give the you know, find an in more interesting plot. Better character writing. You know, no, Clara is not the same character as Amy. Just try again. 
But, you know, I get it. They're friends. Nepotism. Um, but anyway... It's like, hey, he fucking turns in a script on time. Like, that's gotta be what it is, right? It's yes. like, he's his friend, and he fucking, like... Doesn't matter what... Dude turns in a fucking script that you can shoot. And that's not something that every writer can do. Yeah. Particularly for a show like Doctor Who. When you need to just put together a whatever Doctor Who script, you walk up to Mark Gatiss and say, like... Mark Gatiss, have you been thinking about a Doctor Who episode? He's like, I like, I have a whole fucking notebook. I wrote like Victorian soldiers and Mars right next to it. <laughs> I wrote like Ice Warrior, Submarine, Charles Dickens, Ghost. Like, I have fucking five million of these motherfucker. I took two things that have to, like sometimes to have something to do with each other, but even if they don't, I'm not going to connect them in the script in any meaningful way. <laughs> It's like, 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 I've got a great idea. I was listening to that Sandman song, and while I was like really sleepy, and did you ever think about what if we made a monster out of like, like, fucking like mucus and discarded flesh, like, and like skin cells out of the corner of your eye, which is like that sand dust? What if that was a monster? And what if it was a found footage episode of Doctor Who? Do those two concepts like gel together in any way? No. But we can do it. While we're on our Mark Gatiss detour, my question was going to be about other notable writers of the era. Okay. We'll get there. Yeah. Mark Gatiss is a very notable writer of the era. He wrote for every single season of the Moffat era, and in one season he did two. So, let's... And and no spoilers, I wonder which season that is on the ranking of quality of the seasons of Doctor Who. We'll get to that. But while we're at this, Sean, I wasn't sure if I was going to share this, but while I went through the Moffat run, ranking all the Moffat episodes, I decided... Can I differentiate the Mark Gatiss ones enough? I'm going to rank the Mark Gatiss ones for you. Do it. Do it. Do it. I, okay. I, I am so fascinated for this. Because I think this is something... I think we probably actually have some like different opinions on a lot of Mark Gatiss episodes. Yes. Uh, okay. Number nine. Lowest one, because I couldn't bring myself to rewatch it for this project, so that told me everything, is The Idiot's Lantern. That's the TV one from season it's two, so right? Bad. Okay, is that, is that the first really one? fucking bad. As someone who just, quote-unquote, rewatched that one, like, I did not skip any episodes. I want to make that very clear in my rewatch. I'm serious about this. I did not skip any episodes. Maybe, maybe there was an episode or two in season two in which I was not giving it my full attention, attention and doing yes. something else, like writing something at the same time. That might have happened, and Idiot's Lantern might have been the big one. Okay, so we're in agreement on that. It's super fucking boring. Fucking boring. It's so boring. Okay, I know we disagree on this one. Eight is Night Terrors. I hate yeah. that fucking episode. Like, it is so boring. It has five minutes of good stuff up top, and then the rest of it is nothing. It's Amy and Rory running around in a dollhouse, and the doctor looking at a cabinet. It is horrible. I hate that episode. I've, it's one of the, I think this is like a thing with Mark Gatiss, is that there are, there's, I'm looking at the number of his episodes, there's one episode he's written that I like legitimately like, <laughs> most of them I don't like at all, there's a couple that I find very charming, and like, and, and, and Night Terrors is one I find very charming, there it's are... not good, I'm not gonna call it fuck good, but there's something there's something about the relationship between the doctor and the dad I find very charming that okay. that, that story and it, so if it had any actual like intellectual curiosity about that sure sure but no and I understand because there are a few I would say four I find charming but it's, this isn't in the top four okay yeah yeah uh, number seven is Cold War it's so boring it is a black hole of an episode yeah. like I would put like Cold War and the Idiot's Lantern right next to each other okay. in terms of quality for me uh, number six is the Crimson Horror 
It's not the worst because it's at least memorable. Mark Gatiss episodes, I usually forget while I'm watching them. You cannot forget the Crimson Horror. It has Dame Maggie Rigg, or wait, what's her name? Diana Diana Rigg. Sorry, I'm mixing up Maggie Smith and, yeah, Diana Rigg have nursing an alien baby at her teeth. Yes, and and the doctor has been locked up in a cellar and like like in like tomato makeup, and a blind woman comes in and calls him his her yeah. him her monster. Fun fact, you know that episode has the stuff where the doctor is slathered head to toe in red makeup. Yeah, you can pinpoint the moment where Matt Smith decided to quit Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> you can, it's actually caught on film. You yes. can see it in his eye. If it hadn't been for the Crimson Horror, we might have had five years of Matt Smith. <laughs> Who knows? You can you can see it. Yeah, it's there. Uh, number five is Sleep No More. Yeah, it, it's. I'll say this: it's a very well directed episode. Um, like on a production level, it's yeah. very well done. It's a horrible script, and it makes. I still don't understand what they're even talking about with the sleep dust. Like I asked Thomas after we watched, I said, "Thomas, my brother." Explain what are they mean talking about? And he gave like two different explanations that don't add up. And I'm like, you don't know, do you? And he's like, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I would put Sleep No More a little bit higher than than a couple okay. of the other ones we haven't said yet. Uh, number four is Victory of the Daleks. It's yeah. fine. It's I very really lo- functional. It's extremely functional. I like Winston Churchill in this one. Yeah. Fun fact, I think this is the first episode Matt Smith filmed uh, because they they intentionally held 11th hour back so he would have more experience in the role. And you can actually kind of tell because his hair is a little different and he doesn't have all the mannerisms down yet. But I still like this one. Overall, the thing is, it's like a lot of Mark Gatiss episodes, it starts with an interesting idea. What if the Daleks are good now? And has zero intellectual curiosity, and just five minutes later they're evil again. Yeah. And the thing is, like, like that idea would actually be kind of repurposed later on with a Capaldi episode called Into the Dalek. Yeah. Which is, to me, Into the Dalek is victory of the Daleks if it had intelligence. Sure, yes. Yeah. That's, that's a mean way to put it. But I can't totally Sean, disagree with that assessment. Sean, we are being complete high school mean girls in this segment. That's okay. what this is. Okay. My number three is The Unquiet Dead. I like this one okay. It yeah, has I charm. Think, I think The Unquiet Dead is your night terror. Like, yes. there's something that, like, I just, like, I find it mostly, like, really boring. Like, I, it's something of, like, I also find it frustrating because I want, because I find the idea. Yeah. There's so, it's kind of like Empress of Mars. There's, like, fucking Charles Dickens and ghosts, and that's just, like, there's a fucking story to be written here. And you didn't write it. The same with Empress of Mars is that there's a fucking, like, the the ice warriors and, and like like the fucking British Empire. There's a fucking story on a silver platter just laid at your feet, and you didn't fucking write it somehow. Yeah, uh, I the charm for me in this one is I love their Charles Dickens, and I like Chris Eccleston in this one a lot. Okay, yeah, but it, I agree with you. I don't think it's good. But it's I, like, think, it's I think if that the Ninth Doctor had more than one season, I think The Unquiet Dead would be like lower because it's sure, like, no, it's right. more interesting because you just you get to have more Christopher Eccleston and there's not that many he doesn't have that many yeah, episodes, yeah. which yeah. sort of like pulls up some of the bad mm-hmm. ones. Number two is Empress of Mars. Look, this one is still to me a lot more entertaining than the other ones. Ninety five percent of this is Alpha Centauri for me, but okay. especially on second viewing. Okay. But I like what do I like? <laughs> This is way higher than it would be on mine, honestly. I don't... It's more watchable. I don't know. Like, it's... It goes by fast enough. I kind of like the Ice Warriors in it. Um, I like that it's kind of an origin story for the Curse of Peladon. That's kind of neat. Um, 
Uh, I was going to say it uses the Doctor well. It really doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't uh, at all. It completely wastes the villain our told. It kind of feels like he's not even there for most of the story, honestly. Yeah. It's, okay, number one is Robot of Sherwood, right? Yeah, yeah, because it's actually a good one. Like, I just rewatched this. But here's the punchline to this, Sean. As I've said, Mark Gatiss' episodes are just kind of boring and slow. I genuinely do like Robot of Sherwood. Yeah. I mean it, but when I rewatched all of Moffat's era... There was one episode I fell asleep during, and it was Robot of Sherwood, and I slept through the middle 20 minutes, and I came back, and they were shooting a golden arrow, and I forgot how they got there, and I didn't know what happened, and my brother was making fun of me because he doesn't like this one, and it's like, see, it sucks, you fell asleep, and I'm like, I, that's Margatus. End of, end of rant. The thing with Robot of Sherwood is that it's funny. There's funny scenes, no, and, but the other thing is... There is a, there was a story to be written of the Doctor meets Robin Hood and Clara is there. There's a story to be written there, and he fucking wrote it. Like yes, he, he actually wrote the story. He wrote the story. It has like a thematic idea. It fits into the like the text of season eight really well yeah, about no. like impossible heroes and who the Doctor is, whether he's a good man, a hero, like all that stuff. It's fu- it's not the most elegant episode in the no, world. I- God knows it's not. But like out of all of those. All of those those other episodes are either just like just bad, just like straight up really bad, like the Idiot's Lantern, or I think like for me the more like the gatestiest of all the gatesty episodes are the Unquiet Dead, Victory of the Daleks, um, Night Terrors, and like Sleep the Empress of Mars. Like just Sleep No More is like different. Like all of those, like Victory of the Daleks and Empress of Mars in particular, are both episodes that are like just. The most like just functional function episodes, like they just they function. But they start with good ideas, is the other thing. Sure, they they start with a good idea, and then like from that good idea, they just Just like proceed to function. Yeah, and And that's all that they do, and it's the dullest fucking thing in the world. There's no like huge pit story falling pitfall or storytelling pitfall he falls into. There's no like ridiculous bullshit. Like it's just like it just is an episode that just happened to happen, and you maybe saw it, and you can't quite tell if you did. I mean, here's the thing about Robot of Sherwood. In my notes, what I wrote for that one is, this is the one Mark Gatiss episode that feels like it had more than one draft. And it's polished, you know? It's not perfect, but it's polished. So, yeah. All right, Mark Gatiss detour over. Okay, what, though, before we end, like, the last point, because I was thinking about Victory of the Daleks, this is something I wanted to say. Think about other, like, ridiculous, just absurdly specific fucking classic Doctor Who references. Victory of the Daleks has that thing where the, the, the Dalek pops out. I think it's like right before the, the, it goes to opening titles or something. And the Dalek says, I am your soldier. And that holding on the S is a reference to, I think it's Power of the Daleks. It's either Power or it's Evil of the Daleks. So it's one of the second Doctor ones that doesn't exist where a Dalek comes out and says, I am your servant. And that's the, that is, I fucking guarantee you. That is why Victory of the Daleks is about Daleks in World War II. It's because he had the idea of making a reference to the I Am Your Servant line from from one of the Patrick Trout and Daleks stories, and he couldn't figure out how to do a joke with it, so he decided, I'm going to do I Am Your Soldier and just said in World War II. That has to be. That has to be literally how that episode happened. Okay. So, Sean, if Mark Gatiss is the most consistently disappointing writer of the Stephen Moffat era... Yeah. Who's the best? Jamie Matheson. Jamie Matheson. Yeah. yeah. That's mm, yeah. Jamie Matheson is Stephen Moffat's Stephen Moffat. Yeah. He wrote four perfect episodes. They're all amazing. They're usually the best or near best episodes of their season. And they're perfect. Yep. Yeah, they're great. Uh, list them again. They're Mummy on the Orient Express, Express uh, Flatline, Flatline, which uh, is so good. Yeah. The Girl Who Died. Hide. 
and then uh, Oxygen, Oxygen in season 10. Yeah. Also good. And he only wrote for the Capaldi half of the run, but still, like, he's the best. Yeah. yeah. Who's number two? Because um, so Matheson's way up here. Who else do we name? Yeah, like like I don't know if like like I wouldn't like strictly say number two because I'm not looking yeah, at the yeah, list yeah. of all of them. But like like one that pops to mind is obviously Sarah Dollard with Face yeah. the Raven and uh, Thin Ice. Thin Ice. Yeah, he built a really interesting crew of writers for the the Capaldi years because it's actually a pretty small team that wrote all three seasons. Yeah. Um, you know, like uh, like Peter Harness is an up and down writer, but he's an important voice in those three seasons. Yeah. And while I find Kill the Moon infuriating, his other ones are very good or interesting, at least. Yeah. You know, so, like, all the Capaldi writers are pretty interesting. Um, can't forget Neil Diamond did do two. Yes, that's for 11. true. Yeah. And, I, like, I wouldn't... He's not a staff writer or anything on this. Yeah. He's uh, very clearly a, a guest writer. But I, his two episodes are very good, obviously. Doctor's Wife and uh, I like the Cybermen one as well. Nightmare yeah, and yeah, Silver. Yeah. It's not... It's obviously yeah. not as good as Doctor's Wife, but it's a very yeah. good episode of yeah. Doctor Who. If we let's pinpoint other people from Eleven's era because it's easy to name all the Capaldi ones. As well, we said. like like one that sort of like bridges. Um, I mean, he even he wrote School Reunion for RTD is uh, Toby yeah. Whithouse. Toby Whithouse is great. Yeah, yeah. Like he has like not all of his episodes are amazing, but like he he tends to his batting average is really high. It's um, the Vampires of Venice, which is one of the weaker like season one, five but, yeah. ones, but I think it's still good. The God Complex, which is fucking great. Like that's mm. a great great Eleventh Doctor one. A town called Mercy, not as good as the God Complex, but still a very good episode. Yeah, I've forgotten how good that one is. Yeah, I, yeah, I like good. that one. Um, then Under the Lake and Before the, Before the Flood from season nine. Uh, that's his best. Stuff. I agree. Yeah, that's really great. And then like I think his worst episode is the Lie of the Land from season ten. Uh huh. That's the the conclusion to the like monk three parter or whatever. Yeah, but I also like. I think that was just a waste of Toby Whithouse because clearly yeah. Toby Whithouse didn't come up with that one. That was Moffat giving it to him because it's a larger arc thing. And it's just like, that's not, like, if you look at all of Toby Whithouse's other good episodes, they're very standalone. Like, I assume he came up with those ideas, you know? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like, I think I read somewhere that, like, The God Complex was an episode he kept on trying to get made and then finally got it. it God, The so God Complex good. is so good. Yeah. I mean, all right. So those are all writers worth noting. Uh, I really hope some of these continue. I, I, if Sarah Dollard only ever did the two, I would be really sad. I'd, yeah. I'd like to see her do more. Um, it's interesting. Chris Chibnall, his episodes are in the Moffat run. None of them are particularly notable, I don't think. Uh, I think Dinosaurs on a Spaceship is a ton of fun, and I like that one. Yeah. But it's also interesting that like Chris Chibnall did that, the Silurian two-parter, and the Power of Three, right. which is like 80% pretty good and then is horrible at the end. But... Chris Chibnall is interesting because, like, he's going to be the next guy, and you cannot identify a storytelling style from him so far. Yeah. And that's not necessarily bad, like, we'll see. It's just interesting because, like, Sarah Dollar, Jamie Matheson, Toby Whithouse, like, those are, like, you can feel authorship from them. Yeah. You can't from Chris Chibnall yet, so I'm really, obviously from his other work outside of Doctor Who, you can. Yeah. Um, so I'm super curious what his Doctor Who is going to be. Another one I wanted to mention, he only wrote in Series 7, Neil Cross did too. Yes, He did yeah. The Rings of Akaten and Hyde, and I love both of those. Yeah, he, he was like, this. The, I think he was like the savior of Season 7B to yeah. me. Is like, he, he's like, yeah. Those Rings, are the two best episodes. Yeah, I mean. Rings of Akaten and Hyde, like, like, hold Season 7B together for me. Uh, Neil Cross is also the showrunner of Luther, the Idris Elba show so i think that was an interesting yes, thing yeah, yeah yeah he he did like pull in a bunch of like writers who have done other things like i can't remember like the the one that was the what's the fucking the the rebel flesh well yeah yeah well i was also thinking of in season 10 the one oh, okay. with the uh like the wood in the house like whatever that fucking one is called that i can't yeah remember. knock knock is yeah. mike bartlett yes yeah uh, i was going to mention uh the rebel flesh because that's matthew graham who did life on mars yes so he had true. a lot of other yeah. showrunner kind of people come in and do ones did I get that right? Yeah, I was right about that. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, oh, Stephen Thompson was the guy I was making fun of before. The Curse of the Black Spot is bad, but not insultingly so. Journey to the Center of the TARDIS makes me want to put a fork in my eye. I yeah. hate that episode. It's bad. And he did go on to write Time Heist with Stephen Moffat, which is very good. But, like, Journey to the Center of the TARDIS can go fuck itself. So, yeah. <laughs> while we're naming names. Yeah, another one. And, like, he also wrote a number of um, RTD ones also. But I like a lot of his episodes in the Moffat years as Gareth Roberts. I can't believe it took us this long to get to him. Yeah. Yeah. So, for his episodes for RTD, he did the Shakespeare Code, which is like, eh, it's okay. The Unicorn of the Wasp, which I think is, like, also okay. And Planet of the Dead, which I, I have a lot of fondness for that. That's one of the specials he co-wrote with Russell T. Davis. But, but then... Yeah, but then when he gets into the Moffat years, I think that's where, like, they... He really allows, I think, Gareth Roberts to find his voice and write... Like, three just really fucking great episodes is The Lodger from Season 5, Closing Time from Season 6, and The Caretaker from Season 8, which he co-wrote with, with Stephen Moffat. Which is sort of like a loose trilogy in some ways. Yeah, like, and it's just all the, it's like, yeah, there's three sort of different versions of the same idea of, like, the Doctor in, like, a mundane setting, having to deal with yeah. mundane things. And I think, like, it's a great idea for Doctor Who that Doctor Who very rarely does and should do, I think, more often because it gives you a different perspective on the character and yeah like all three of those episodes are really great yeah so uh and one in terms of one-off writers who like only did one i want to give special mention to richard curtis who did vincent and the doctor Mm -hmm. um which is basically just a richard curtis movie done in doctor who you know he's the guy who did love actually um four weddings and a funeral um he did the one movie that's ever made me cry embarrassingly hard in a theater about time so richard curtis is very good at making you cry vincent and the doctor makes you cry it's a great episode yeah so Sean, uh, here's the hard question that I'm going to give. You. I'm going to throw it to you. Okay. All right. We can. You know what? Let's start with the inverse of it. What's the worst episode of this era of Doctor Who? I gave my vote. I think it's Journey to the Center of the Tardis. Journey to the Center of the Tardis. Um, hold on. Let me. I've, I'm off the page that has all the Mark Gatiss episodes. Let me go. <laughs> is it a Mark Gatiss for you? Definitely. It might be. It might. Okay. Be. I'm trying to think of like Journey to the Center of the Tardis is really bad. Um, Curse of the Black Spot is also. Really fucking bad. But Curse of the Black Spot is like boring bad. It's not offensive yeah. bad. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, yeah, like Cold War is Cold War is down there. So fucking boring. It's like the it's just a singularity of pure fucking it's, boredom. It's weird because I remember liking season seven B more than seven A. But seven A, all five episodes are good. Yeah, They're, I think seven A is definitely better than seven B. It's just like, but it, they just, it doesn't feel like a season. Like it yeah. just feels like a random hodgepodge of episodes. Yeah, seven A. Like at the time, we all felt fatigue with Amy and Rory and stuff. And yeah. then seven B was at least like, oh, new character. Seven B is way worse. It's got like three good episodes. Yeah, it's yeah. That's the that's the nadir of the Stephen Moffat yeah. run. So yeah, those um in the forest of the night. Um, I really don't like that much. The I like that one. one. I, I haven't will... rewatched it. Okay. I mean, I've I've, re- I've seen it twice. I haven't seen it for the yeah, third yeah. time yet. So maybe maybe will my say, opinion will change. I just I did not like that one. I before. remember us disagreeing when it aired, and so I was really curious when I hit it in my rewatch. I still like it. It's charming. Whatever, but it's okay. I, I, I understand. Sure, I can see like see finding it charming, but I think it's yeah. just not very here's, good. Kill to, the Moon's also, also like yeah, not very good. No, but here's why. Let me let me expand on Journey to the Center of the Tardis. Yeah. that episode is one of the few episodes. That, like there are plenty of bad like Doctor Who episodes there are few that are misanthropic like Doctor Who is a fundamentally optimistic show I think it has an optimism about human nature and about like people's ability to do good right or otherwise it wouldn't make it 50 years yeah and Journey to the Center of the TARDIS 
is like, one, it's the apex of the Doctor being super creepy towards Clara in that he just is treating her as this puzzle. He, like, she is a Rubik's Cube to him that season. Yeah. And that episode is like the apex of that in a lot of ways. But also it's that thing with those three brothers on a ship who are... Have convinced one of the brothers since like he was a little boy that he's a fucking android slave. Yeah, that is like one of the darkest things to ever happen in the history of Doctor Who. And the show just like doesn't unpack it at all. Like it no. doesn't. Do, it, it's completely unnecessary. It does nothing for the episode. The episode's I, not interested in exploring that idea. It just sort of happens. Yeah. I also don't like that you do an episode set inside the TARDIS and you don't make it fun. It's a horror episode. The TARDIS is, like, kind of your other main character. Like, yeah. be nice to her. <laughs> you know? Like, it's a really brutal... Ep- I hate that episode. Yeah. It also has just, like, the, the fucking terrible resolution with... Yeah, the, he literally hits a reset button. button. Yeah. yeah. It's really bad. It's... Yeah. Yeah, I, like... I can definitely see that with Journey to the Center of the TARDIS. The one thing I do... Well, like, I agree with you that it's, like, it's... Like, I, like this scene is not necessarily misanthropic, but it's, like, it's, like... You know, the whole, like, Doctor treating Clara like a puzzle box thing is that there is that one scene that like directly confronts that idea when they're trying to get to the engine room and they're like on the, the cliff or whatever, like out, like quote unquote outside. And the doctor's just like, okay, like we're going to die. Just tell me who you are. I hate that scene. I, there's something about that scene that to me, it feels like it's the show finally sort of like fessing up to what the 11th, how the 11th doctor treats people. I think you can read that in retrospect. I think it's, a huge misreading of Matt Smith's performance, and it makes him actively unpleasant. And I don't like that. I think he is an actively unpleasant character in that episode. But I think that I think there's something about that that works for me because it's something that he always does. Like all the way back to the eleventh hour, like the way the eleventh hour ends, um, because, because like you know because we both like just rewatched this is. Uh, you know, he lets Amy on board the TARDIS, and I forget exactly what the conversation is, but like, like, but Amy's like, basically, like, like, why me? And he says, like, oh, because I like, like, something like, you're my friend, well, whatever, you know. But, but like, he, he gives her, like, this one sort of, like, platitude reason for why he's taking her with him on the TARDIS, and then it cuts to him, like, he shows him looking at, like, an image of the crack from the, her bed wall, bedroom wall, and there's always this sense of, I think he grows out of it with Amy and Rory because he gets to know them. But the Eleventh Doctor, like, actively manipulates people constantly he, in a really kind of messed up way. And I think that, like, the Clara relationship is the apex of that. I think it could have been and should have been explored in a more, like, interesting, delicate manner. I, and, but that's my issue, is that I think there's something materially different from the Doctor having this problem where he is manipulative to, like, manhandling and shouting at someone. And I know, I know he doesn't, like, grab her and shake her, but, like, in my mind he does that. And, like, it reminds me of the scene in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire when Dumbledore shoves Harry Potter against, like, a bookcase and is like, did you put your name in the goblet? And it's like, whoa, like, you're getting at something about Dumbledore here, but you're doing it in a way that is really off for that character. That's where, how it feels to me. Sure. I, like, it, it kind of reminds me of... um. When the sixth Doctor regenerates and attacks Perry, and everyone freaks that's, out about that, that's I, a like, fucked up part too. Yeah, but like, there's something about it that like that feels like a part of the, the character to me. I don't know, like it feels like he like that the Doctor is going to do that sometimes because like the Doctor's not like actually that nice of a person a lot of the time. Like you you get you see the best of him, but I feel like there's always this sense of like yeah no like like there are these moments where he's going to break in those ways. All right, so those are the worst ones. Yeah. What's the best non Moffat written episode from this era? Uh, or, or we can just list some of them. Yeah, best. like um, Jesus, like, Doctor's I mean, Wife. Yeah, is up Doctor's there. Wife is way, way up there. 
Um, I mean, like like the the Jamie Matheson ones of like Mummy on the Orient Express. Especially if you're looking for like a meat and potatoes like Doctor Who adventure, that's like because the Doctor's wife is all you know about like Doctor Who and the relationship with the TARDIS. But yeah. in terms of like just like land the TARDIS somewhere, have like a, a fun adventure with a cool monster, like Mummy on the Orient Express is is way up there. And I I love that one. I like Flatline even more between sure, the two. Yeah. Uh, like you can't really go wrong with that. Yeah. But Flatline is even higher for me. Um, Face the Raven by Sarah Dollard. Yeah. That one is super fascinating to me because. It's one of the only... It's like the only time he gave a huge arc episode to someone else. Yeah. And Sarah Dollar just hits it out of the park. It's not even a co-written one. Like, I'm sure he had some hand in it, but he didn't take a credit on it. And I think Face the Raven, like, I was amazed... I liked it at the time a lot. I was amazed just how hard it hit me still all these... Not all these years, you know, two or three years later. But, like, it it hit me very, very hard. Yeah. I would also say uh, Oxygen from Season 10 is really fucking good. Think about, like, other Jamie Matheson ones. Um, we already mentioned the Neil Cross ones I yeah. mean, both of those I mean we kind of went through a lot of these I don't know if I could pick just one Like Vincent and the Doctor is up there for me Yeah that's a good, that's a good one um, There's just it's, This is what's fun Is you can mention some of the bad ones But there's a kind of a short list Like yeah. there are so many good episodes from this era And maybe that's where we need to take This discussion before we go into my countdown here Is that you know, there are the issues in season six and then especially seven with consistency here and there. Season five is great. Seasons eight, nine, and ten are great. Yeah. This is largely a pretty consistent era of Doctor Who qualitatively. How do you place this in your head? And I know it's hard because it's still technically ongoing. Yeah. With other kind of t- periods in Doctor Who history. But we've had six years of it. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's something of like one, like, it, part of me would want to just like sort of split it in the middle and call yeah, them yeah. Like two different eras because they're so different. But, like, I think it's up there. Like, I think it's up there with, like, the Hinchcliffe and Holmes and, like, the Barry Letts with the Third Doctor. Like, it's one of the... Like, it's definitely... It's not Graham Williams' Fourth Doctor. It's not, like, the John Nathan Turner stuff. Like, it's not down anywhere in there. Like, it, it's... like it, You know, the First Doctor, Second Doctor eras are, like, hard to categorize in those ways because the people behind the scenes shifted too much. But, yeah, like, I think it's, it's like, a such a fertile effective, powerful, creative, interesting period of the show for Doctor Who, particularly if you, like, cherry-pick out the Peter Capaldi half. Yeah. Like, it's so consistently really strong, which is something that, like, when you look at the the arc of the history of Doctor Who, it's, like, the first Doctor run pretty consistently good. Like, like rough episodes here and there. Second Doctor of what survives. Like, really fucking... Particularly of what survives, because we have his last season. Really, really fucking good. Third Doctor, consistently really good with, like, a dip in the middle, but, like, super strong first two seasons. Really strong last season. Maybe a little bit of dip in the middle. Second to last season is maybe even better than the last one. Yeah, yeah, but, like, definitely, like, really strong. Consistently really strong. Fourth Doctor is, like, Holmes and Hinchcliffe era super fucking high quality like across the board like one or like no super like like just straight up bad stinkers a couple of like sort of kind of forgettable episodes but mostly just like all-time classics and then you get in the graham williams so inconsistent like super up and down some terrible episodes some amazing ones like a city of death and then the john nathan turner stuff is the fifth doctor super fucking inconsistent sixth doctor mostly very bad with a handful of like really good episodes and the seventh doctor starts fucking terrible and then slowly gets better and better and better and better and better until it's really good so it's like it is this like and then it got canceled and then it got canceled so it's like this and then rtd i would go back to the like very inconsistent very up and down and then for like 
the Matt Smith, I think that's where it starts getting more reined up. Of like season five is generally, I don't think there's a bad episode in season five. Like there's a couple of like okay episodes, but like even like Vampires of Venice, which is like kind of forgettable, or Victory of the Daleks, which is kind of forgettable. Neither of those are terrible. Like they're just kind no, of no, fine. No. And then season six, like, you know, neither of them, I would say, are as bad as something like A Curse of the Black Spot. No, 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 of course not. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. Yeah, and then season six is more like, you got Curse of the Black Spot and The Wedding's River, Wedding of River Song. Not good episodes. Yeah. And then season seven, also, like, Name of the Doctor is fucking, and Journey to the Church the Center of the TARDIS are really fucking bad. And then you finally get to Peter Capaldi and it's like, back to the, like, third Doctor, fourth Doctor, like, last season, second Doctor, just like, everything's good. Like, it's all good. The worst thing is, like, just okay. You know, like, like I guess there's, like, Kill the Moon maybe is, like, like just is bad enough. Like, In the Forest of the Night for me personally is maybe bad enough to call, like, a bad episode. But, yeah, like, I think it is when you, like, arc that out. I think we've, I don't know who knows how, like, the Chris Chibnall run is going to be. But I think Stephen Moffat, over the course of his run, sort of reined it back in and brought it back up to this, like, consistent level of quality that has been hard to attain for a long time in the show. Yeah, and the three years of Stephen Moffat, Brian Minchin, the other executive producer, and Peter Capaldi are just a pillar. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would not want to be Chris Chibnall having to follow this. It's going to be... Like, and I have nothing but excitement for the new era, but I also, you know, they have a tough act to follow. Oh, yeah. That's all there is to it. 